You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. things want and why are they here you still don't get it do you boy? they have recruited the rich and the powerful they're running the whole show wake up they're all about you all around you blinded us to the truth take a look they are safe as long as they are not discovered i don't know what they are or where they came from but we gotta oh, stop them stay away from me put these on they have us look at them they're everywhere We have no other choice. I don't like this one bit. Leave it alone, man. It ain't none of my business, ain't none of yours. We have been lulled into a trance. Listen to what I'm saying to you. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. Control us! You're sending some kind of signals on the TV sets. I've got one that can see. Mama don't like tattletale. Now we start spilling some blood. Let's go! Push I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick And I'm all out of bubblegum. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back with me once again is Mr. Patrick Bromley. Hi, Mike. And also, or I should say, Itambien Aki is El Goro. Brother, life's a bitch, and she's back in heat. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at the 1988 film from director John Carpenter, They Live. Based on a short story by Ray Nelson, the film was written by Carpenter under the name Frank Armitage. It stars Rowdy Roddy Piper in one of his most noteworthy roles as Nada, and Keith David as the aforementioned Frank Armitage. They're two homeless men who discover the world is being run by a cadre of aliens who've taken over the economic and political power. If that's not already a spoiler, then I say just, uh, you know, we're going to continue to ruin things for folks who haven't seen the movie. So if you haven't seen it, please go out, check it out, come on back, we will still be here. Now, Patrick, when was the first time you saw They Live and what did you think? I remember wanting to see They Live so badly as a kid. And honestly, my, my entry point into the film was through Rowdy Roddy Piper, because as a kid, I was a huge WWF fan, and he was my very favorite wrestler. And so to see, oh, there's this action movie coming out that Rowdy Roddy Piper stars in, I was dying to see it. I, I, I knew who John Carpenter was, but I think this was before an age where really it was a director who would draw me to a film. It was more, you know, who was in it or what the plot was or something. I didn't get to see it theatrically because I was too young. And so I had to wait for it to show up on cable. And I can remember the night it premiered. It was like a Tuesday night. It premiered on TMC, uh, the movie channel. And it was showing at 7. And I remember sitting there watching the clock because my mom was making dinner and it wasn't ready yet. And all of a sudden it was this race. Will dinner be ready first or will the movie start first? 
And I was growing more and more nervous as dinner wasn't ready by seven because that meant I wasn't going to get to watch the movie. So I missed it that night and caught up with it, I don't know, maybe a week later. And it quickly became a staple of my entire life. Um, as a kid, I don't think I appreciated much of the political com- commentary. I was aware of it, obviously, because how can you not be? But it wasn't until I engaged with it more as an adult where I really appreciated what Carpenter's messages were. As a kid, I just liked watching Rowdy Roddy Piper beat the shit out of aliens. But uh, nowadays, I enjoy it on that level and as an extremely prescient and relevant piece of political commentary. I came to this when I was in high school, but uh, being that I'm younger than you guys, it was probably far removed from when you saw it. Uh, I used to get together with my friends, and we would uh, hang out on weekends and just mainline as many movies as possible, completely frying our brain with all sorts of sordid cinema. And they live entered into the rotation. We were all big fans of John Carpenter with movies like The Thing and Escape from New York. So it was only a matter of time before we came to They Live. Now, prior to that, I had some familiarity with with it because much like Patrick I'm a huge Rowdy Roddy Piper fan and I knew that he had made this movie I had heard some snippets of the dialogue had a general idea what was going on with it and knew that there was some sort of big deal about the fight what I had no idea was just how deep the politics went and because I was a teenager just coming into my own political identity I was deep into the angry liberal phase that still hasn't quite gone away but it's been tempered a little bit it was the perfect movie the kind of movie that a teenager seems primed to absolutely love. It's the idea that behind the smiling face of everybody in authority lurks this monster that we can put on these glasses and see and even more than that, confront and possibly beat. And so, yeah, I absolutely loved that film as a teenager and I continue to love it to this day. I also saw this film when I was a teenager, though I saw it theatrically the first time around. I think i saw this one down at the wine dot uh theater of memory serves and yeah glorious glorious and this was definitely before i kind of knew who john carpenter was i remember my folks talking about of all movies uh escape from new york when it was originally playing and uh so i kind of knew who carpenter was but really yeah i was right there with you guys as far as this being a rowdy roddy piper vehicle I don't know if people listening today who are much younger than we are, I mean, yeah, you guys are probably a little younger than me, but I mean, really like the, the, the kids in their 20s and, and maybe even younger might realize, I mean, yeah, wrestling's still a big business, but when it first came to the fore as a big business, when WWF was right there, I mean, you can look back at our cinematic landscape and, and see the impact that wrestling made. I I mean, not just movies like Body Slam and No Holds Barred, but just that, you know, Hulk Hogan is still culturally relevant, that, you know, uh, Governor Ventura was a wrestler. Just so many things came out of that era, that that kind of prime time of what would you guys say, like 84 to maybe like 88, 89, maybe even a little bit beyond that. But back when things like WrestleMania were just 
absolutely huge and just like people still talk about you know the first few wrestlemanias and oh my god it was at the pontiac silverdome and i remember playing for that on you know pay-per-view which was like a new service back then so it was just like this um, amazing cultural impact that wrestling had so much so that it could help push the careers of so many of these different guys i don't think that andre the giant would have been in the princess bride had it not been for his wrestling career i don't think we'd still be talking about hulk hogan all these years later if it weren't for of course his wrestling career he would have been in um rocky three or anything so it just it made such a big impact and yes this was like the big thing for roddy Roddy piper to have a movie i mean this was bigger than hell comes to Frogtown. this was the big league and uh, it was just amazing to see him in this and then i do remember from that first time seeing it just that ridiculous fight and it just felt like it took up 20 minutes of the movie i've I've retimed it since then it only takes about five minutes but my god does the movie just come to complete halt (laughs) when this fight comes on and it is one of those like cultural touchstones that we'll definitely talk about but you know you still see the impact of that in pop culture today yeah and it's funny that you mentioned wrestlemania because so much of the roots of this as well as carpenter's previous film prince of darkness can be traced back to wrestlemania three that Carpenter participated in because it was at that event that he of course met Rowdy Roddy Piper and realized hey I can do something with this but I believe it was also that event that uh, introduced him to uh, Alice Cooper who he had in Prince of Darkness. Again what you what you were saying the fact that wrestling at a time I mean it is still big business now and it's certainly recapturing the public imagination you know when Wrestlemania hits it's a huge event for the city that it happens in but as far as as slicing into the mainstream as big as it did those early wrestlemanias during that whole rock and wrestling period it was big it was huge it was something to go to it was an event that you could see a guy like john carpenter attending what's amazing even to think back on you know how wrestling you know how some of the heels that were involved in wrestling back then you know were just such a a reference to um the political uh, arena i mean to have the iron sheik as one of the bad guys to have nikolai volkov as one of the bad guys i mean these are just right there with you know pretty much pretty much today they could still be uh our quote-unquote enemies in the wrestling ring i mean it's just some things never change but i remember like they were such a team up when you know the the Iron Sheik's doing the figure four leg lock, and and uh, Nikolai Volkov is is there singing the Russian national anthem, and people are just booing like crazy. How dare that guy sing that national anthem? Just you know, everyone go fucking nuts about that stuff. George the Animal Steel being congratulated by manager Freddie Classy, the Iron Sheik, and Nikolai Volkov. Let's go to Mean Gene for the interview. Oh, yeah. And it's funny to think that even though Piper's playing the hero in this movie and plays the hero in so many of the other films he was in, the majority of his uh, wrestling career was him as a heel and arguably one of the best heels in the business. That man could talk in ways that nobody else could. I mean, one of his most famous lines from one of his promos is you don't bring a rock to a to a machine gun bike, (laughs) you know. Probably misquoted it, but nobody can really quite capture Rowdy Roddy Piper. Every once in a while, that Canadian accent will slip through. There's a moment yeah. where he, he apologizes to Keith David in here, and he says, I'm sorry, and I'm just like, sorry. oh, oh man. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's not just Canadian, he's super Canadian. Dude's from, I think, from uh, Saskatchewan. 
Fuck yeah. Yeah, he's way out there. So him wearing that fucking kilt always was just like, what? Why, <laughs> Why is he wearing a kilt? You can't spell Canada without saying nada. Have you ever even been to Canada? It's pronounced Canada. And no, I haven't. Nada. What an interesting character name. I mean, this guy is—he's Captain Nemo almost. He's nothing. He—he's he, just such a cipher. And the way that he comes into town, and we've got that. I mean, I like John Carpenter scores uh, a lot. I especially love, you know, Assault on Precinct 13, the Halloween score, Escape from New York. I can't say that I'm as huge of a fan of the They Live score as I am of other ones, just because it feels more repetitive than some of his other scores. But it does capture that almost Western flavor, because it just feels like kind of that more bassy guitar. It's almost like a blues kind of thing, and it fits with the uh, the railroad and all that when we see him kind of just coming into town, and, and he's almost like the new sheriff, you know, coming in and assessing the situation. Oh, definitely. And one of the things that is a hallmark of Carpenter's compositions is that he'll usually find this catchy rhythmic beat and then just kind of build off of that. And in this case, he was playing it out with the guitar. And I think maybe because he couldn't do as many uh, synth layers, it didn't become quite as iconic. But it does work in the context of this film. Though curiously enough, if you want to talk about kind of repetitive music, compare the main um, theme from They Live with the main theme that he composed for Vampires. I'm pretty sure he just dipped back into the They Live riff and just kind of recycled it. I love that uh, Carpenter is obviously a huge Western fan. Mike, you already kind of mentioned the Western influence, and he's talked over and over again about how much he loves Westerns and how much he admires John Ford and Howard Hawks and how all of his movies are essentially sneaky Westerns, you know, where he remakes Westerns as science fiction and horror films. I think they live probably more than any of his films, except for maybe Assault on Precinct 13, is such a sort of classic western as you mentioned i was re-watching the film and as as nada comes into town the only thing that's missing is a horse i mean he's got his backpack in place of a horse but with that kind of plotting theme that plays over and over again and him riding into town it's it's straight out of a western yeah, it totally reminds me, uh, and I know that uh, it was taken from Yojimbo, but it really reminds me of when Clint Eastwood comes into town in Fistful of Dollars and just is kind of assessing the situation, you know, like like in Yojimbo where you've got the uh, the dog with the hand in his mouth, you know, just like, okay, this is what I'm in for. But it's very telling to me that as he is wandering into town, one of the most prominent things that he sees is when he's walking through more of the city part and stops by those television sets. And there's the guy there watching TV and, and uh, Piper starts watching TV. And I'm, I'll probably switch back and forth between Rowdy Roddy Piper's name and Nada throughout this. So just be warned. But yeah, so he sees these and again, these iconic American images playing on these television sets. You know, there's an eagle, there's a rodeo, there's all this kind of uh, great imagery and that that the tv is just going to come back and back and back until it becomes the forefront of the entire movie and i like that you know we get that little touch of that at the beginning before he even makes his way into what do they call the the town like justiceville which again is a very western sounding name for this like homeless area and those early sequences 
where everybody is just so focused upon the television, particularly the city's homeless. These days, it reminds me so strongly of David Cronenberg's Videodrome, where he was operating with the comparable conceit that the the reason that people were homeless is because they were disconnected from the the cathode ray, and that the only way to reintegrate was to submit yourself to that, to sort of join the cultural zeitgeist. Now, in Videodrome, it's questionable whether or not that's a good or bad thing. A lot of things in that movie are kind of up to your own interpretation. But in this one, it's it's undoubtedly sinister. Movies almost don't exist in They Live. And there's this distinction that Carpenter seems to be making that I'm sure a lot of filmmakers have made between film and television because film is never presented as being this sort of homogenized uh, sinister medium. Um, it's television that does that. And television is the thing where we get our, our messages. Television is the thing that's pacifying us. Film is not present. Yeah. The only time there's really a film present is a film that's being shown on television. You know, there's just like a real quick clip of an old film. And I'm trying to remember what the name of it is. I actually watched it as part of my research for this one, thinking like, okay, is there going to be a tie in? And not necessarily. It's like one of these, you know, like, oh, yeah, this uh, creature landed and it sucks all the the water out of people's bodies. And it's almost like this crystalline entity kind of thing. But, yeah, we just get a real quick shot of that. Otherwise, it seems like the majority of the television that they're watching seems to be very very vapid and especially the people on tv seem to be very vapid especially when nada is there and he's not watching kind of the communal television he's looking and watching television through somebody else's window and there's a woman on television there talking about how sometimes when i watch tv i stop being myself and i'm a star of a series or i or I have my own talk show, or I'm on the news getting out of a limo, going someplace important. All I ever have to do is be famous. People watch me, and they love me. And I never, never grow old, and I never die. Just seems like she is existing to get on to television, which, you know, I think, uh, I, I can't remember which one of you guys said that this was so prescient, but it just really kind of fits more into almost this YouTube culture of, you know, everybody can be famous, everybody can have a podcast. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> 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 but yeah, it's like, you know, this whole idea of we can be somebody and, and you, you know, you, that, that whole rat race, it just seems like it is really, this whole movie is just, it's so focused on the rat race and the making of the money and stuff. And just, you know, Frank Armitage, uh, the Keith David character, his first, I don't know, uh, 10 minutes of screen time, it just going on and on about all the ways that the man basically is fucking you over. We gave the steel companies a break when they needed it. Know what they gave themselves? Raises. The golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rule. They close one more factory, we should take a sledge to one of their fancy fucking foreign cars. You know, you ought to have a little more patience with life. Yeah, well, I'm all out. The whole deal's like some kind of crazy game. They put you at the starting line. 
the name of the game is make it through life. Only everyone's out for themselves and looking to do you in at the same time. Okay, man, here we are. Here we are. Now, you do what you can. But remember, I'm going to do my best to blow your ass away. So how are you going to make it? I deliver a hard day's work for my money. I just want the chance. It'll come. I believe in America. I follow the rules. Everybody's got their own hard times these days. And his whole thing where when he says at one point, I believe in America, I was like waiting for that speech from the Godfather to come in. I believe in America. America has made my fortune. And I raised my daughter in the American fashion. I gave her freedom, but I taught her never to dishonor her family. And here's how messed up it is. I mean, this movie is almost 30 years old, and they mentioned that Frank is from Detroit. I mean, you could conceivably, you're living in Detroit. How how often would you uh, say you could come across a story like Frank's even today? Oh, pretty darn often. There I are. would say even not a story where he's talking about, you know, I was working at the mill and all of a sudden the jobs dried up, yep. you know? And that employment woman, because that is one of his stops on the way into town, and she just is not having any of it. I'm sure if he put on the glasses, she would probably be a, a ghoul. But just the way that she looks at him so disinterestedly and the way that she kind of rolls her eyes when he you know, is expressing his desire to work, it's just like, yeah, she might as well just go, ah, oh, fuck you, get out of my office. Pretty much. I mean, it's showing about the failure of society on all of these levels. You know, the rampant homelessness, the homelessness, the uh, jobs that are completely gone and the institutions that are ostensibly there to support people just not existing. And yeah, it's 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 remarkably prescient. It's one of those things that we I think that's what continues to give this film the satirical the satirical and pointed political power that it has because it's still applicable to this day. There's a distinction in the two kind of worldviews of Frank and Nada that obviously is important. And it wasn't until I rewatched the film a couple of years ago that something kind of crystallized for me. Maybe I should have seen this more, you know, maybe I should have seen this earlier when I was a kid or something. But what I think one of the things that Carpenter seems to be saying is, yes, the aliens, the people in power are fucking us all over. That is their goal. That is their job to get all the money and the power. And so they are definitely the evil in the film. But what allows that to happen isn't just that we're all being tricked or pacified by television and magazines and media. I mean, that's certainly in there in terms of the movie. But I think the two attitudes of both of those characters are a big part of what allows this kind of infrastructure to take place. Because on the one hand, you have Nada, who later I think is revealed to be something of a cynic when he essentially acknowledges, you know, it figures it would be something like this. But up until then, he's giving the speech. I believe in America. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to keep working, keep my head up. And eventually, I, I suspect it's going to pay off. And on the other hand, you have Keith David, who is cynical, yes, and feels like the world is fucking him over, yes, but who also is going out of his way to 
ignore the problem. And obviously that's going to come up again, I think, when we talk about the fight scene, because that's what that whole fight scene is about, is the limits to which someone will go to deny the reality of what is happening in the world around them. And I just, as I watched that, I was like, yes, this is what allows this situation to take place, whether it's in the film or, and I'm going to try not to get too crazy political, but as you had said before we started recording, El Goro, you can't talk about this film without talking about politics. What allows for so much of that to happen is these two beliefs, the belief that if I just ignore it, somehow things will get better. I don't want to know. I'm going to disconnect from politics, from all of this. And, and not as a whole thing. I think when I watched this a couple of years ago, it was reminding me of a, 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 a person who had his 15 minutes of media fame two election cycles ago. And he was just known as Joe the plumber and Joe the plumber was, he represented the every man and he was sort of the Republican poster child. And Joe the plumber represented the hardworking American who, if you just keep at it, because I remember at the time thinking like Joe the plumber, why are you going to vote against your own interests? And the answer was always, well, because he's aspiring to be part of this 1% or whatever. And if you just keep working hard and you, you do your part, you too can be part of the 1%. And that's nada at the start of this film, right? This idea that, Hey, if I just keep at it, eventually I'm going to achieve some sort of success. And what Carpenter ultimately says is no, because there is every force out there is going out of its way to prevent that from happening. Exactly. I mean, it's the idea that we're all sold the American dream, that everybody can succeed. But one thing that we're often not told is that for many of us, there are a, a very serious and very strong impediments towards uh, to, in the way of our success. Yet at the same time, we're told, oh, you just got to keep working hard. You just got to do everything. And it's the interesting cognitive dissonance that arises in certain people that do manage to, quote unquote, achieve the American dream. They've been told that the American dream comes as a result of labor. And so even though that uh, admittedly they do work very hard, they ultimately become blind to some of the institutional advantages that they had to help them along the way. They're blind to them because they've always they've always existed for them. They've existed within this higher tier. So they're able to succeed and they're able to for, uh, can perpetuate that sort of myth of the American dream. And it's interesting when you look in this film the big breaking point between the ideologies of Nada and Frank to where I pointed to is actually comes prior to even Nada discovering the glasses. It's the raid on the shanty town because it's that's where it really feels like you're seeing Nada's perception of what the world is and how the world works break down because you have this idyllic community where everybody's coming together everybody's helping each other out they're working hard they're they're making a go at it and then out of nowhere it just gets completely wiped away trampled underfoot from these faceless jackbooted uh, police officers and you can see as he's surveying the wreckage it's all very internal i don't think that uh, uh, Piper gives it as much credit as he perhaps deserves for a lot of his nonverbal acting in this movie. But he is able to sell, you know, that kind of 
well, how could this sort of happen? And then it's only then that it sort of leaves him open to being able to accept the glasses. I mean, we're getting into kind of esoteric territory here, but I honestly believe that the glasses themselves wouldn't have the impact if not for that shanty town destruction. Similarly, Frank's whole, whole awakening could not happen without a L- instrument of violence, which is leads us into that fight. I was really reminded of the whole Occupy movement when it came to that shantytown stuff and just the whole... I mean, these people are there not by choice, so there's not that idealism that was there for the whole Occupy movement, but just the idea of these people there working together, trying to make the best of a bad situation, and then having the authorities kind of crack down on them. I don't know if you guys picked up on that as well, but yeah, I just uh, that kept coming to mind as I was watching the, the last time. Yeah, it's this attempt to destroy something that is at least organized. You know, let's come together and try to build something, and then immediately that's torn down. After three weeks, the media apparently has finally discovered the Occupy Wall Street protests. What they see, they've fallen in love with. Yes, but really, honestly, what's not to love here? Unlike Occupy media outlets, they realized that early on, the Tea Party rallies were very violent and dangerous and vile. They're vile. Media called the Tea Party virtually every name in the book, including terrorists, but they were also racists, of course. I will, you know, come out here as being a a left-leaning person, so I apologize to any of your listeners who do not subscribe to my beliefs, but... I do think that the film does contain some and maybe these things were not true in 1988, but watching it now, I feel like the movie actually does contain some messages about the ineffectuality of the I'll say the left. I don't mean to just point it pointed at the, the Democrats, but the 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 resistance in this film spends so much time meeting and arguing and discussing and trying to make plans, right? And this is the inability of the left or the Democrats or whatever to function in the way that perhaps the conservative right movement does because for as much as you may disagree, if you're like me with so much of what the conservative right does and stands for, they get shit done. And that's the aliens in this movie. These people get shit or aliens rather get shit done. And the part of the reason why the resistance can't is because they spend so much time talking about it and trying to not strategize or, you know, they kind of spin their wheels instead of getting shit done. So are they the Los Angeles people's front or the people's front of Los Angeles? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's the idea and it's a criticism that's been leveled against the left many times. And like you, I am also on the left of politics. But it's the idea that the reason that it, so often the left fails, it, particularly in reaching out towards working class people, the people that ostensibly used to be very solidly on the left when they were all part of unions and things like that, and who all, many of the policies that are championed by the left actively support, it's a failure of message. It's the fact that there's always the discussion about the message itself, whereas the people on the right are able to crystallize their message into very simple 
powerful and very powerful statements. And our phrase, you all know it, half of you are wearing the hat, make America great again. If you want to uh, see an example of that uh, turned into a sinister way, it's the same way that the aliens go with. The aliens don't brainwash us through a academic giving a long, very, very complex screed over pirate television. They simply put bullet point statements. Obey, marry and reproduce. This is your God. Make America great again. And that's one of the uh, criticisms you can see uh, Carpenter leveling at it. This movie strikes at both sides. And in many ways, it feels reflexive of that tendency that we identified in our conversation of The Thing, where he's talking about the dissolution of societies. And it's reflexive of his own personal politics that led him towards making The Thing, that while he is a liberal person, the root of John Carpenter is a man who just doesn't want to be told what to do. He uh, sees himself as a Snake Plissken type character. So you can see why he would uh, spare some venom towards the organized left, because when it's time to actually get shit done they're too busy having a meeting yeah each of those things that that nada sees when he puts on those glasses you might as well just throw a pound sign in front of those now they're just (laughs) uh they're hashtags you know hashtag obey hashtag this is your god we keep saying that this film was prescient but we have to remember that coming out in 1988 this is after eight years of reagan and there are direct references to Ronald Reagan in this when the politician who Nada sees on t- television is an alien. You know, he's talking about... It's a new morning in America. Fresh. Vital. The old cynicism is gone. You know, he might as well be talking about the fucking city on the hill. You know, he's just using a Reagan soundbite right there. And I don't necessarily know if this film is as as prescient or if it's just that whole thing that I've said before where, you know, in the 80s, it was that whole thing of like, yes, you can work hard and yes, you can can make it into that 1%, but you, you you, you never talk about the consequences of those people who don't necessarily work that hard, who just fuck people over in order to get into the 1%, the yuppies. And this whole movie feels like... You know the yuppification and and what those consequences are. I mean, we can look at the the drifter character played by George Buck Flower, who just the way that he sells out and makes it into that upper echelon. You know, and they're talking about the forty percent more profits this year than there were last year, and all these things. I mean, this is right out of the nineteen eighties. And when it comes to yuppies and yuppification, I mean, there is no bigger fucking yuppie than fucking donald trump and the way that he you know just completely screwed over so many people continues to screw over so many people and the way that he was one of these you know i don't care if you get yours i got mine and it's basically like the yuppies won when it came to this political cycle because that's what it feels like all of this kind of throwback stuff feels like because it is you know all of these yuppies who are you know trying to, so hard to get ahead in the 80s are now in the seat of power well and they were in the seat of power even back when they were making the movie on various uh, tiers of of control i mean carpenter talks about when he was pitching this to universal he had a universal ex- executive upon learning the plan of the aliens to kind of take over everything he says well where's the threat in that we could you know still work with them and then he used that line for buck flowers 
we we talk about how this movie, you know, was very much of its time, but I could not imagine this movie being made by Universal. It had to have come out of the in, the independent, alive uh, films like it did, because this is a direct shot at the human power elite in order to borrow a line from They Live. All my life, I made money. I made money. I've always been good making money. I think I have great imagination, but I made money. And all my life, I did well. And what happened is my whole life, I've been greedy, greedy, greedy. I've grabbed all the money I could get. I'm so greedy. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence evolutionary spirit greed in all of its forms greed for life for money for love knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind and greed you mark my words will not only save Teldar paper but that other malfunctioning corporation called the usa yeah, I'm surprised that there weren't, you know, Hollywood execs being directly lampooned in this and, and you know, sniffing cocaine off of prostitutes' asses or something. Well, you did see that they they threw a lampoon against Siskel and Ebert. Oh, yeah, yeah. definitely. And that sure did look like Siskel to me from the way his position where he was sitting. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, they, they only had uh, – what is his name? It's, it's Amada, the uh, stunt guy who played all the aliens. So he's a thin guy, so they had to uh, – had him play <laughs> – you're absolutely right it's not so much prescient as much as it is commenting on the time in 88 it's just the the depressing reality is that the movie is still very true and still very accurate in terms of the way that it portrays the kind of systematic corruption which unfortunately hasn't changed in 30 years and it was hard. It's hard not to watch that scene at the end where Buck Flower is kind of laying out, trying to get them over and, and join up. And Nada says to him, you know, you'll sell out your own people. This is a thought that I have on a nightly basis now as I watch the news and I see things that are attempting to be passed or being passed or support being thrown behind people that I think are reprehensible. That is the line that comes into my head again and again and again. You'll sell out your own people for a chance at power. And that's all it comes down to. It's not about representing the best interests of any of us, just as it's not about representing the best interests of anyone not Nada, not Frank, not anyone in the shantytown. It's just about how can I grab onto a little piece of this power. That is a line that has stuck with me for 30 years and continues to depress me to this day. Yeah, if people look at some of these things and they're like, well, why would that happen? Why are they passing this? Why are they passing that? You just have to do the whole, uh, you know, all the president's men thing. Just follow the money. There's there's always an economic reason for these things. You know, I'm sure there's somebody's paying off somebody in order to do the whole, like, going into a, a wolf den and, and shooting hibernating wolves and bears and stuff. You know, it's just like there's there's always an economic reason behind this stuff. God, I, I feel like I sound like fucking Alex Jones or something but it's just like it's 
you know, you watch this and you're just like, okay, yeah, this this is a movie about Roddy Piper getting woke, you know, and it's just like, come on, guys, you know, we need more people to put on the glasses. <laughs> well, as long as you're not talking about space pedophilic vampires, then you're not quite into Alex Jones territory. I never expected Trump charging into a goblin's nest to not get some goblin vomit and slop and blood on him. I just don't want to catch him in bed with a goblin. I don't want to see him kissing goblins, having political succubus with goblins. I don't want to see him ingratiating goblins. Did you hear about that pizza parlor in Washington? Oh, God. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's 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 interesting that using that as a segue, how this message has continued to resonate in ways that John Carpenter didn't anticipate and actively rebels against. Because you have people now on the radical right that are viewing this as justification or at least a clear a call to action to fight their own uh, perceived power bases. They don't. They they view, you know, use it or see it in anti-Semitic terms. The idea that there's a secret cabal of Jewish people that are running everything and have been they've been using the iconography of they live for quite some time. And I'm and it's interesting to see just how widespread just the imagery from they live has become. I mean, if you go on to the Facebook invitation uh, for this particular episode, you yourself, Mike, have posted up a lot of the various gifts of, you know, political figures that are put on the glasses, reveal the ghoul underneath. And it makes me wonder for the younger generation, how many of them have been exposed to that imagery, can intuit what it means, but don't know the actual source of it. And I, I can't help but wonder if the people that are using it on the right have even seen the movie, because it almost would be, it would be incredibly difficult to watch this film and walk away thinking that it puts forward a, a, a essentially conservative worldview. There are people, I mean, there's the scene where there's the, um, the, the one human guy is talking to the ghoul and he's just like, you know, I got passed over for that promotion again. And the ghoul's like, oh, you just got to, you know, keep working hard and you'll do it, that kind of thing. And, you know, well, that's easy for you to say you got the promotion. And it's that whole thing of like, oh, yeah, if there's, you know, if there's a Jewish company, then they're going to move up the Jews and they'll leave the, the Goyim alone. You know, like the, they will never succeed in that kind of thing. And that's where some of these, you know, a-holes are coming from is like seeing this stuff as this anti-Semitic message, this warning for us. And it's just like it, it's just a recycling of, you know, the, the prodigals of the elders of Zion kind of stuff. It's like the same kind of malarkey that we've heard for so long. And then they're trying to repackage it and i'm just so glad that carpenter came out against them and was just like no you a-holes this is about yuppies you know this isn't about jews just you know it's ridiculous but yeah like people want to see things the way that they want to see them whether they're wearing the glasses or not they'll just be oh yeah no i i can totally understand where they're coming from on this movie. well and it also feels like a reiteration of the or the repudiation of uh, similar claims that were leveled against carpenter when professional analysis of uh, slash films started coming around and they were saying that it was pre it was presenting an inherently conservative worldview because you know people that uh, tra transgressed against society were being punished and everything and they were claiming that he was a conservative filmmaker and his response was have you seen they live <laughs> <laughs> um, let me ask a question about because we were talking about Buck Flower and kind of this idea of selling out and it reminded me also of that scene where the two yuppies are standing there and the one is kind of saying well just keep working 
because essentially we now have, you know, the aliens are sort of infiltrating our regular conversations. And there's a scene before we see Buck Flower in the tuxedo where he's sitting on the couch in the shantytown when they're watching the TV and he kind of talks about, yeah, this kind of thing has always been going on and he's spreading some cynicism in a way. And I was watching it this time, knowing where Buck Flower kind of ends up in the film. And maybe this is made clear or perhaps one of you two guys has a thought on this. At that point in the film, have the aliens already gotten to him? I'm reminded of this sort of current state of spreading disinformation Mm -hmm. and the way that he is essentially spreading disinformation. It's not that what he's saying is wrong, but he's saying things that are specifically, again, attempting to pacify people who might be getting upset or ready to act. It's like, yeah, but don't bother because this is just how it is. On the one hand, that could just be read as cynical, especially for a guy who is homeless and living in this shantytown, which is, I'm sure, how I watched it the first time. But now, kind of knowing where he ends up and in this current culture of fake news and and trying to spread disinformation, I was watching it wondering, is he already sort of an agent for the aliens? See, I don't know if it was exactly at that point. The big moment that I think that he's definitely an operative is during the siege of the shantytown. Because there's a there there two there are two shots of him. There's one when it initially comes where he looks kind of calm, and then there's another one where he's responding to the extremity of the response against the shanty town. So I believe that he was the person who informed the powers that be of what was going on in the mission. I don't think he necessarily intended it to um, go off into the shanty town and destroy where he was living and the people that he was probably friends with. But I think that his upgrade later on into tuxedo um, <laughs> buck flowers it's his more it's his more uh, evolved form i think that happened as a way to pacify him after he sold out in that bit that he just kept selling out yeah i'm reminded of that uh, little comic strip of the dog in the in the house that's on fire and he just says give it a chance you know after trump won it was like give him a chance come on yeah, guys this is come fine on. I never really thought about that. I mostly think about when they might have gotten to Holly, who uh, is an interesting character, I have to say. Like When we first are introduced to Holly, after Nada has uh, seen what the real world is, I mean, it feels so much like the beginning of, I think it was The Burning Bed, the Farrah Fawcett one. It just feels like, okay, she thinks that Piper that Nada is going to take her home and rape her and then that she ends up being the bad person at the end of the film it's such a nice way to kind of take that and stand it all on its own head you see I always assumed that she was with the aliens from the jump it's why she knocked him over the head with the uh, bottle why she refused to put on the glasses you know she was trying to uh, neutralize the threat because she knew exactly what was going on the entire time I mean she worked at the television television studio where the signal was going out oh yeah and she's trying to throw people off i mean when she says like oh yeah it's not the signal isn't coming from that channel it's not like she's volunteering oh it's coming from my channel (laughs) it's coming from cable 54 there's even a maybe a visual clue for this and maybe this has been pointed out before i kind of went out of my way i started flipping through that Jonathan Levin book, the deep focus book. Mm -hmm. And then I stopped because I was like, well, I don't want to just regurgitate, you know, this stuff that's said in the book. So 
if this is brought up in his book, I apologize, but I was watching the film earlier today and our introduction of Holly is that shot of her walking through the parking garage and it lasts a really long time. And I was sitting there wondering, why does Carpenter hold this shot for such a long time? And then I noticed above her is a sign hanging down in the parking garage that says reduced clearance. And I thought, well, on the one hand, obviously, that's just a reference to the height of this parking garage, right? Big trucks don't come through. But then I thought, well, maybe that's a reference to Holly because she's a human character in cahoots with the aliens. So she has reduced clearance, right? She can get up so far through the ranks, but she's not one of the quote-unquote elite. She's sort of one of the working-class conspirators. I can dig it. I wouldn't be surprised even if her, I mean, Meg Foster, the actress, with her really spooky eyes, I mean, because the whole movie is so much about looking and seeing and understanding what you see and all these things. I mean, some stuff early on when Nada is watching the goings-on at the church where they are producing or, or at least are getting these Hoffman lenses, these sunglasses in. And him there with his binoculars looking at the church goings on and you know, at one point like he he moves from just looking to actively, you know, looking through binoculars at them. Kinda of reminded me of the scene from to go back to another Clint Eastwood movie, reminded me of uh for a few dollars more when uh, they're up on the roof and watching how they're uh the uh, bad guys are kind of pacing out uh the perimeter of the bank that they're gonna rob and, and doing the whole countdown and stuff there's so much about looking and stuff and then meg foster just her she has darker features she has these really pale blue eyes i mean her eyes are just such an amazing feature of her and i'm wondering if maybe that's one of the reasons why she was cast was because of that striking striking feature. oh i'm sure i'm sure that was another that was an element of it though uh, speaking of john wayne did you catch the uh searchers reference that carpenter threw in he totally had a searcher's doorway shot yeah. Oh, yeah, that was great. <laughs> I didn't realize until last night when I was rewatching this film how much Nada stumbles. Like, he stumbles and almost falls or falls quite a few times in this film. He stumbles, literally stumbles into the area where the lenses are being kept. He stumbles. There's a second stumble. I'm trying to remember uh, where he almost falls into something. And then he basically stumbles. Oh, he stumbles when he's wearing the glasses and he falls back a little bit. And then when he's also wearing the glasses, he basically backs into a bank (laughs) where he delivers one of the best lines ever uttered in cinema and uh, which will just always just be immortal and should be inscribed above like you know the hallowed halls of cinema i mean that is one of the perfect lines oh absolutely perfect i have come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass And you recalled, uh, speaking of stumbling, I mean, at one point, one of the alien cops says to says to him right up front, you've stumbled into something, you know, that he is meant to be just this everyman hero, the guy who is not necessarily qualified to take on this alien menace, not quite on Jack Burton level, but still not, you know, our traditional action guy, but is still going to do his best and ultimately succeed though not in the best of circumstances. And the first three people that he ends up shooting 
are all, which I don't think I noticed before, all happen to be uniformed authorities, basically. He shoots those first two cops in the alley, and then the next person he shoots after stumbling into the bank is the security guard. Uh, And obviously the movie goes out of its way to not have him shooting at human even human sympathizers you know to only be shooting at the at the aliens but i thought that was interesting that it's sort of authorities the very first people that he shoots i i love the bubblegum line obviously because i have ears and a brain and i love the fact that 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 was a a roddy piper line that he had you know come up with uh, during his wrestling career he kind of john carpenter talks on the blu-ray about piper handing him this little sheet of paper with here's a bunch of the stuff i said when i was you know here's a bunch of the one-liners i came up with when i was a wrestler and so he tried to incorporate some of those into the script so i love the the bubblegum line but i always grapple a little bit with the switch between the very silent sort of internalized acting that you guys had pointed out that i think is really strong that piper does through the first half of the film to sort of the quippier one-liner action hero guy he becomes later on you know and i love an action movie quip as much as the next person but it almost at times feels out of character with who they've established they might possibly justify it in storyline because he does mention when you wear the glasses it's like uh, you're on a drug so maybe it's just this maybe it's it's him partially going insane as well. I mean, being faced with this amazing discovery that everything you thought you knew about the world is absolutely wrong. And the only response he has with to it is violence. But it's of this quippy violence. It's of him just saying, you know what? Fuck it. We're just going to let everything go and we're going to not, not care about the rules of society because the rules of society are obviously full of shit. Yeah, when he does the cheese dip line, that one always kind of feels a little clunky. Something tells me that was a Roddy Piper line, along with formaldehyde <laughs> face. Though I do love, you know, Mama Don't Like Tattletales. That's probably one of my favorites. Though I always think that he says that before he shoots that the little guy, the, the, the drone flying over the city. Yeah, but it's when, he, when they have the guy who uh, teleports away from the bank, right? No, with the drone, it was, so who are, how are you doing, little fella? Talk about his uh, Canadian yeah. accent peeking through. <laughs> and again, it does help make the movie work just as a movie, you know, just to have those one-liners and everything. It does make the movie more entertaining, which I know was a big part of Carpenter's goal. This couldn't just be medicine. It had to be entertaining and it had to work as a movie, which – it obviously does because you know we all kind of opened the show by saying we all loved this movie and didn't necessarily well old girl you think you said right away you recognize the politics involved I, I i'll speak for myself i didn't i just enjoyed it as an action film sure and those kinds of one-liners are certainly part of the language of action films well of course it brings up the question that you you i posed to a lot of carpenter movies in the 80s what if he had uh, done it with um, kurt russell so when if you would put Kurt Russell into this movie, would the the quips still be there? Because, you know, he was he was pretty quippy in Big Trouble in Little China. Would he have been more of a reserved snake type character? Was uh, Carpenter just kind of channeling the inherent charisma of um, Roddy Piper himself? Because even though he is really good in the stoic silent roles, again, I want to highlight his nonverbal acting that he does in this movie. 
the man made his career n- not, not only doing backdrops and, and suplexes, but for his ability to talk. He was one of the best talkers that ever existed in wrestling and continues to be to this day. Well, he's obviously dead, but nobody's really quite come up to that level. So I wonder if it was just, you know what, we got Rowdy Piper, we got to give him some lines. Well, it's, it's interesting, though, that when he puts on those glasses, that starts for him, a silent sequence that goes on for quite a while. And I love that, that that is pure visual storytelling. That whole sequence of him wearing the glasses, as soon as he sees obey written on that sign, and he just takes those things off and he's just like, what the hell's going on? And the way that it's just all him reacting to what he sees around him. And it really takes him a long time before he does that whole, you know, you're real ugly kind of line to that woman in the shopping mall. I mean, he's already gone through that whole, the magazine rack, all those things. I mean, people are asking him questions, but he's not responding. And it's just amazing that it's just so long. To me, that is one of the strongest sequences that Carpenter has had in his films. It's just is so powerful. And where you've got a protagonist who's just shocked into silence and i also love that we are in this color movie and that the reality is black and white you know that he is showing us the truth showing us it in black and white you know it's such a nice reversal of the whole uh, wizard of oz thing or or the um you know the stalker the tarkovsky thing where the fantasy is in color and the reality is in black and white Carpenter has remarked and joked, I think, in some interviews, too, about how that was a joke sort of about the Ted Turner colorization, that Ted Turner is one of these yuppie assholes, and he takes things that are black and white and colorizes them. So, of course, these yuppie asshole aliens would take reality, which exists in black and colorize it. Uh, because they're assholes like Ted Turner. Obviously, it's probably more of just a visual storytelling conceit so we can tell the difference, but it is really effective. And I love the way, not just the, as you said, Mike, the the visual storytelling of that first sequence when he puts the glasses on, but also the sound design of that whole sequence, the decision to take out a lot of sort of extraneous noises and you're just hearing the sounds on the street and some of the voices takes music out of it, you know, and we also get sort of the Spielberg shot, which, you know, Carpenter is not a a filmmaker who's particularly influenced by Spielberg. I don't think, but that first shot of Roddy Piper, he looks around, he sees the signs, he sees the money. He hasn't yet seen a person or an alien. And so the first glimpse we get is his reaction shot before we cut back to the alien. And that is very, a very Spielbergian shot, that shot of a person's face as they stare in wonder or amazement at something off screen that we cannot yet see. Uh, that, that whole sequence is incredibly well done. Oh yeah. And it definitely shows that while nobody would probably call him as much of a, craftsmen as like a Spielberg or any of the other people that were working during that period, some of the big names in there, he does have the proper instincts to deliver all of that information without any dialogue. You know, it could, you could easily have uh, him say, it's like, what am I seeing with these eyes? No, he (laughs) allows it to play out visually and thus cinematically. It shows that while he is very much a no frills filmmaker, he has the discipline and the competency and, and mastery of his craft to deliver the information strictly with visuals. Yeah, I just remember the second time 
that he stumbles is when it's actually in the grocery store and he knocks over the stuff. And that's kind of almost what shocks him back into speaking again is after that second stumble that he does. It also kind of stalls him long enough for the aliens to start coming towards him, which is a really effective visual yeah, that shot of them all with their wrists up talking on their, their wrist radios, that is one of the the scarier shots of the film because they are en masse right. at that point. And it's it's shots like that that I think can why you can classify they live as be as fitting almost within the horror genre as well. I mean, it's where where would you put a movie like They Live? It's an action sci fi certainly, but it has elements to it that fit comfortably within the horror genre because you know that's that's very much John Carpenter's wheelhouse. Well, and the whole enslaving of humanity thing definitely fits right there in, in the horror realm. I mean, they're not, you know, taking out their hyperthalamuses <laughs> or anything and, and, and cooking them up or anything. But, yeah, there they definitely uh, are some, some great horror elements to them. That they are called ghouls in the end credits, you know, rather than aliens is telling as well. And, I mean, ghouls and zombies kind of go together. You know, the other thing I wanted to say about the Meg Foster character is it's interesting that – so much of this movie is seeing the truth and him there with the glasses on and everything and seeing the the true stuff. When he's in Meg Foster's car, he's not wearing the glasses. And when he asks her if she's married and she says, yes, he just immediately says, don't lie to me. And it's like that he can see through her lies without the glasses. And she doesn't necessarily do a bad job of lying. I would say he just, um, he instinctively knows on that level, either that or maybe it's a carryover from uh, the glasses letting him see through uh, you know, other people's lies. It's also an example of lies on top of lies. And that's one of the things that I did because, as I said, I started reading uh, that Deep Focus book. And one of the things he talked about is that opening shot where we see – the title and then that kind of gives way to the graffiti on the wall and so we're getting sort of this visual lie on top of this visual lie and so he sees through meg foster's lie about being married and yet fails to see through her lie for the entire film that she is an agent with the aliens you know and as, as much as her her eyes kind of give her away as something other as you had pointed out mike and as much as she's the first person in the film that we encounter who owns that, her own place, everyone else we've met in the movie uh, lives, you know, as part of the shantytown or as a drifter or whatever. And so she's the first person who has achieved some piece of the American dream. Uh, he's unable to see through that greater lie. And so I don't know if that's Carpenter saying, talking about kind of distraction, our ability to sort of penetrate some lies that might be on the surface keep us from the big picture uh, or if that's just set up because we want Meg Foster to fear for being raped you know there may just be a narrative purpose for that um, but I do like the idea of it commenting on this idea of a lie on top of a lie on top of a lie well, and she lies and says that she's thirsty as well, and that ultimately is his undoing and she's got her own place with uh, Fat Barry Gibb as one of her uh, gay neighbors well, yeah, she's got a couple bears living across from her. One of them is, is Larry Franco, from what I read in the credits yesterday. That was Larry Franco? One of them. I'm not sure if he was the portlier of the two. Yeah, the only gay characters in the film are outwardly gay, which is funny because 
that um, uh, the Lethem book a little bit, and then especially the cultography book, they just keep going back to the well, talking about how so many of the scenarios in the movie feel like they're right out of a gay porn film but without the sex like the uh the way that he comes into town and the way that he meets keith david the way he takes care of the younger kid after the shantytown raid and then even you know to the the famous fight and just like how homoerotic some of that seems i don't necessarily see that but it did make me laugh quite a bit when i see uh roddy piper there without his shirt on and just some of the the dialogue between him and keith david i was just like okay yeah i guess you could kind of read this as gay porn but you know it, it, i was just like no 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 you can't you can't touch my childhood film you can't do now that, i just no. want to see somebody uh put together a supercut of those uh homoerotic sequences particularly him without a shirt <laughs> and put some slow saxophone music over it and yeah oh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what he would want Keith David to put on, though. Anyway. Um. <laughs> but yeah, it's great. Once he's woke, he wants to do the same for Frank. And that's ultimately what leads us to the infamous or famous fight scene, depending on which side of the fence you're on. And oh my God. Yeah, this, this is why you hire Roddy Piper. And Keith David seems to give as good as he gets in this fight which just goes on for fucking ever. <laughs> and then I loved, uh, I don't know if you guys had a chance to see, but I attached a Vimeo link to the, uh, to, to the show notes. I didn't realize the first time that I watched the episode of South Park that they were doing such a direct parody of the fight, you know, until I saw a cut side by side of cripple fight from South Park and then the alleyway fight from They Live. It was just amazing to see those side by see, side. See, I didn't catch it until they did the repeated shots to the nuts on the gr- on the ground, and it's like, yep, <laughs> they're doing They Live. God damn it! Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I love the way that that fight works out, and you could tell that you know um, Piper had a hand in. Uh, arranging that fight because you know this is what he does this is what he's done for most of his life he has presented uh, fake fights that are real and dependent on your you know fandom of wrestling it's uh, it goes into your appreciation to what they do but essentially what they're telling in in good wrestling matches is a, is a physical story you know you'll have it can be very simple you know the idea of the of the good guy trying to overcome over the cheater on top of that and while that fight doesn't necessarily adhere to the classical heel face dynamics because both of the guys fight pretty dirty throughout the entire thing what it does have is an emotional through line you see the character start off in one place in their heads and then over the progression you just see them start transforming you can see the moment when piper decides you know what i'm gonna start fighting dirty you can see it in keith david as well when he becomes more desperate and i love that they even include little moments that actually make the fight feel real. You know, people talk about how over the top it is, but how many other fights do you know will all of a sudden uh, just stop everything to laugh at the fact that a guy's bottle that he tried to turn into a weapon just completely shattered. <laughs> and I've seen stuff like ha- that happen. Shit, I've, I've been in situations like that where a fight will just all of a sudden stop because somebody does something funny, whether it's they fall over. There was one time where a 
guy farted in the middle of a fight and everything <laughs> broke up like that. It's those little bits, those little touches that lend this move, this fight such incredible brilliance. And one of my favorite moments of it is when, you know, these guys are all beaten up and then, you know, Piper comes at uh, Keith David again and you just hear that wail from Keith David. It's like, oh, we're still going. <laughs> uh, it's so good. <laughs> And I had to say, I love the aftermath when they go and they rent that room together and they're just all like his cheek is all puffed up and everything. And they just look like a fucking mess. Well, again, how many <laughs> other movies would actually show that aftermath of a fight, you know? Oh, yeah. Usually they, you know, after you're done beating the hell out of somebody, you look fine and they look pretty good, too. That scene in the hotel room is a very, very powerful scene. I have to say that this is probably, other than the silent acting that you were talking about, this probably has to be some of the best vocal acting that Piper does in here. When he tells the story about his dad, that is a, a great moment. Even if it ends with that kind of cheesy, you know, I ain't daddy's little boy no more line. I mean, that whole thing about his dad turning mean and holding a razor blade against his neck and sawing it back and forth. I mean, that's some scary shit. And I have to wonder how much of that was influenced by Piper's own life. I mean, he ran away from home when he was, you know, just a young teenager. And a lot of it had to do with the dust ups that he would have with his dad, you know, prior to becoming a wrestler, he, he drove like, uh, he drove trucks for a living. He did all sorts of just odd jobs. So I wonder if the power of that scene came from him channeling something that was really true to life. And just as a guy who has known real life horror and who has had that experience and is, you know what, I'm, I'm going to fight back. You know, I'm not going like the line says, you know, I'm not Danny's little boy. It is kind of a, an over the top line, but it very much kind of informs this character and why he is who he is and why he is ostensibly the first person to actually do something. You know, we talk about getting shit done. Like he's really the first one to get shit done in the movie. And I think it is informed by that past experience. What's funny. Cause George Buck flower does mention earlier in the film about, you know, violence breaking out. And I think he even says at one point, you know, people robbing banks, doesn't he? I've been hearing something on the streets the last couple of weeks. Weird stuff. Some sort of epidemic of violence, what they've been saying. I was talking to one old boy. He's from, uh, from San Anselmo. He told me they got some sort of cold up there. End of the world kind of stuff. Well, what are they doing? You know, shooting people, robbing banks. Same old thing as always. A whole lot of people gone crazy over some nutty dream they just had. You want to know the truth? This kind of shit happens at the end of every century. It does. It's just people afraid to face the future. It's all dead. That line is just, you know, very telling as far as what's going to happen in the rest of the film, you know. Um, so I'm curious about other little pockets of resistance that might have gone up. But yeah, the, when it comes to this resistance that Piper and his people are putting together, this is the only one that succeeds. And to the earlier conversation, the rest of the group is fairly ineffectual. I mean, they managed to arm Piper with some good weapons at this point, and he and Keith David managed to survive for quite a while, but it's really only Piper that manages to 
succeed ultimately and to finally knock out the signal that's going across the city and, you know, let people know what really is going on. But, um, yeah, it's another one of those after they get out of uh, that hotel room and, and Peter Jason picks them up and takes them back to these this other headquarters that they have. Again, to your point, it's just more talking, more talking, more talking, and then just waiting until the authorities come back in and bust it up again. Now, their detection is becoming more effective. So we have to be more careful. Stay aware of keeping up appearances. Go to work. Punch your time clocks. Do what's expected of you. We've gotten reckless. And the movement's suffering for it. Time to stop talking about it. Trying to figure out how it happened. Now we start spilling some blood. Wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. It's not working. We don't stand a chance with a few guns and grenades. So what are we supposed to do? We bite our time. No, no, no. We have we have to wait. We have to do it smart, you know. And then they all die. And then uh, once again, you know, it's the repeated uh, theme of them stumbling into success because how do they uh, infiltrate the aliens? Keith David throws the watch over his shoulder and it just happens to malfunction. These guys are not the perfect heroes, but what separates them from everybody else is that they never get frozen by indecision when it when they start trying to act they commit themselves to it and even when things go completely wrong like when they're in the in the radio or television station and it's just like well what do we do now well there's got to be another way up there come on <laughs> meanwhile they're being tracked down but with a bunch of people with uh, props from ghostbusters i have to say the pacing of this film is pretty remarkable when you think about just those longer shots that we were talking about at the beginning, those shots of Piper coming into town and just the way that the music is going during those parts, you know, very laconic. And then as this movie starts to go, I mean, especially around this part when they, you know, there's a little bit of a pause here when we go into that kind of, you know, almost boardroom meeting that we have. But once that is over, I mean, this movie really moves. It picks up a big head of steam as he's trying to find Holly, trying to find his way up to the satellite, you know, just doing all of this stuff. I mean, these last few minutes of the film just really cook along incredibly fast to the point where I have to actually stop and try to remember when Frank gets it, you know, because it is just so sudden, so fast and so shocking too. And uh, it's just like, Oh yeah, I forgot. Frank doesn't even make it to the end of the movie. Like I was, when I rewatched it last night, I was just like, Oh fuck it. I always forget that he gets it at this point. And it just, I I don't know if it's just because I like the Keith David character so much, and I think it's very unfair, but this is, you know, we talked about the thing the last time the three of us were together. Talk about a a nihilistic ending to the thing. I mean, this one has a ray of hope that, you know, Piper has ultimately defeated the the bad guys by knocking out this television signal. He, He literally flips him the bird as he's laying there dying. But at the same time, he's dying. You know, everybody's dead at the end of the film. The resistance is dead. All this stuff is is gone. You know, the preacher's been taken out. All this stuff has happened. And, you know, and our hero is laying there dying at the end of the film. Very sad, but at least we do have that that quick 
moment to show that people are seeing what the truth is at the and end. And I think that coda is what separates this from the other films in Carpenter's de facto apocalypse trilogy of The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness. Whereas all of those end on, appropriately enough, apocalyptic endings where there's not really hope, this one does have that moment of hope. And in many ways it feels reflexive of his appreciation for westerns. You know, how many westerns end with the hero riding out of town or dying you know we got movies like shane we got uh, once upon a time in the west that i watched recently again because i love that movie and i i, I seldom need an excuse to rewatch it but it's the idea that this this kind of protagonist the one that exists outside of society he can fix the problem but he can never be there to take advantage of the fruits of his labor either he is going to die or he is going to leave because he doesn't exist in this sort of society he doesn't exist in this sort of idyllic world so I think that he was channeling that, and I think he was also channeling the dark place that he was in in his head, you know, the thing that got led him towards the more overtly nihilistic films like The Thing, like Prince of Darkness, like In the Mouth of Madness. It's possible, too, that it's born out of, I know this will come up a little bit later, but the original short story ends in a similar fashion, not exactly the same way where the aliens specifically kill him, although yes, they do kind of kill the narrator in a different way. Um, but it is that same idea, which is I succeeded in my mission, but I had to sacrifice my life in order to do it. All right. We are going to take a break and play a quartet of interviews. The first is with D. Harlan Wilson, who is the author of the cultography on They Live. Next up, we'll hear from Sandy King, who is the associate producer of They Live. After that, we'll hear from actor Peter Jason and actor Keith David, and we'll have all of that after these brief messages. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Faith Fathers, a family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. Hi, this is Kevin Batchelder. And this is the Saturday B movie reel. Shoot it! Shoot it! <laughs> That's about describes it, yeah. Alright, everybody stay here. We look specifically at the Sci-Fi Channel's original movies. You know the ones. The ones that air on Saturday night. Be known throughout the ages as an instant classic. <laughs> we need a bigger gator! Uh, limb cutting yes. and blood squirting from... <laughs> Flying limbs, I called them. it in my notes. What could go wrong? We look on a regular basis at the movies as they come out, and since they've been over 200 of them, we do go back and look at many of them that are now out on DVD. By this point, I had completely forgotten any semblance of seeing if this actually makes any sense from a plot point of view. So come on by, get involved, and have some fun. Check us out at SaturdayBMovieReel.com. Our future depends on it. Make it safe. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us to church. 
Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, God. Ugh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the projection booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we have author D. Harlan Wilson, who's going to talk to us about the cultography on They Live. My real name is David Wilson, with the middle name Harlan. My pen name is D. Harlan Wilson, so it's uh, essentially the real. And I'm a professor of English at Wright State University Lake Campus in Salina, Ohio, small town in northwest Ohio, on a fake lake, 10-mile-long fake lake that I live on, that uh, is full of runoff from the farms that surround it. I am a fiction writer as well and playwright, but I've always done that stuff kind of on the side. My my main gig is, is uh, 
uh, an academic, I guess, and critic. And I run a press called Anti-Oedipus Press. How did you get involved in writing about, teaching about, talking about film? I've always liked film from when I was a kid. However, I initially went to, I'm in, in undergrad, I went to undergrad in, at Wittenberg University in Ohio. And uh, I thought that I would, my dad uh, owned a small business and I figured I'd take that over. So I started out majoring in, uh, in excuse me, in business. But then I got interested in English and uh, particularly Shakespeare and medieval um, literature and sort of thought that that would be fun. And undergrad, I was a fraternity too and uh, mostly partied. And then after I, because I always figured, well, after you graduate, uh, you're going to go work for your dad anyway. And I did for two years, but then I realized I was uh, kind of artsy fartsy and uh, decided to go back to grad school um, with the intention of being like a, you know, a Shakespearean or medievalist. And um, I went to UMass Boston for my master's and my mentor there turned me on to science fiction. I was kind of into Star Wars and stuff when I was a kid, but uh, I didn't know science fiction could be something that academics, you know, treated. And he turned me on to a program in Liverpool, which was a master's in science fiction studies. And uh, after I got my master's there, I did that in Liverpool. And then I went to Michigan State University to do my PhD. And my dissertation was you know, related to uh, science fiction literature and film. From the moment that I was sort of introduced to science fiction, I liked, I was into both forms, writing them creatively on my own, but, but more uh, writing about science fiction, particularly films and uh, novels and stories. I just was very surprised. I'm glad that you uh, have attended an illustrious Michigan school. So that that's fantastic, especially after you went to Liverpool and then you come all the way here to, to East Lansing. I, because I'm from Grand Rapids. So I kind of wanted to be by my, uh, by my family, but no, I actually wanted, I tried to get, to do my first master's at U of M, but for my undergrad, I, I graduated with like a two eight. And of course, I, in order to get in, even to get into UMass, I had to go to Western, uh, Michigan, uh, right? WMU and, uh, take a couple of classes to prove that I could do well because I sort of. I was, you know, I enjoyed it as an undergraduate student, but I was more interested in frisbee golf and, you know, drinking beer. Tell me more about this program, because this sounds absolutely fascinating to actually study sci-fi as your major. It was so wonderful. It's definitely the best. I had a good experience at UMass Boston. That was, I loved living in Boston. I liked the people that I met there at the university. But Liverpool, I mean... <laughs> It was it was dreamy. I, I just didn't know something like that existed. And there's not there are other programs of that nature, science fiction studies programs in the world, but not that many. I think the the most uh, the one that gets the most acclaim is at University of California Riverside. If I'm not mistaken, it was uh, it was only a year long because one of the reasons I did a second master's is because. I needed to, because I screw, screwed off in, in undergrad, I needed to sort of, I figured I'd need more uh, um, to, to prepare for doing a PhD. I, uh, the two years that it took me to do my first master's wasn't enough. I needed, you know, another year to uh, get into it. And also, it was a chance to go abroad. And I, uh, it was a very laid back program, so I had a lot of time to myself. 
I recall it was broken up to a, into about four different modules. Uh, I can't remember what they were specifically. Uh, but essentially, every week, we had to read a book or two. And then we got together. And there weren't that many people in there, maybe four or five in the program. Actually, I, I think seven, seven. And uh, I got to know them pretty well. They were all, there was one Irishman, and uh, I'm Irish, uh, of Irish ancestry. Um, and then the rest were English. And we would literally just read books and get together uh, uh, twice a week and talk about them with, with a, uh, you know, uh, different professors at the university. It was very structured. Um, and, you know, I, I fell in love with England and traveled all over the place uh, when I was in Scotland, Ireland, uh, Wales, all over. Going back to East to, to Michigan and East Lansing after that was uh, a little bit depressing. And then uh, after my PhD, I moved down to where I live now in Salina, Ohio, and that's even more depressing. It's it's a uh, small town. I mean, it makes East Lansing look like the cultural bastion of the world. But whatever, I've kind of gotten over all that, and uh, I currently am the director of the humanities and, and social sciences at my uh, university. And yeah, I don't have time to, I don't have time to complain anymore. I used to have more time to complain and, and say, what was me? There's very few people I can ask this question to. Did you approach, they live through the eight o'clock in the morning story, or did you see the movie first? No, I saw the film and I was very much into Rowdy Rowdy Piper when I was a kid. I, I was avid fan of the W. Was it the WWF back then? And it was only when I um, got a contract to do this book that I then went back and uh, checked out all the source material. But I was very much into you know John Carpenter's Oof and uh, saw all his all his movies. And I do I, I do go into some detail in, in the the book. You know, I hate calling it a book. It's, it's more like a the equivalent of a like a critical novelette or something. You know, it's not how long is that? It's like a hundred pages. But you know, they format it as a book, so I'll call it that. No, I was I was uh, um, a geek for that film through and through. Was that your favorite Carpenter? Was that your go-to? If I had to pick one Carpenter film, it would be that I love. You know, love the best. It would be the thing. And I uh, in fifth grade. Only in fifth grade, eleven, I uh, begged my mom to let me see it because it was rated R, and uh, she said no, no, no. But I wore it down, and she took me to see it, and uh, I loved it, of course. But then I was terrified and couldn't sleep. I mean, I still can't. I still have nightmares all the time. I don't think they're all related to Big Live, but uh, or excuse me, to uh, uh, the thing. But that original, the remake was so so. I thought the original was so much better. But, you know, the 80s was Carpenter's heyday. He had, I, th I think anyway, his best movies were made in the 80s, right? Like Big Trouble in Little China, Halloween. Actually, Halloween might have been late 70s. After They Live, I, I don't know if I really enjoyed a, a Carpenter film, although I, you know, I see, I see them all. And, I, you know, you notice some Carpenter-esque themes and so forth. But uh, I really think that They Live was like his... his Last great film. And you know, does he make films anymore? He hasn't made one for a while. Yeah, he made one a couple of years ago called The Ward that I still have yet to see. That was about four years ago, wasn't it? And he's older now. He's in his 70s, I think. Although, you know, 
Ridley Scott's in his late seventies and he's got five movies coming out and you know, I mean, he's crazy. But yeah, Carpenter was a very big part of my, my childhood. I, uh, when, when I forgot when we got a VCR, but I remember smuggling in different, especially big, big trouble in little China. And, uh, I forgot what it was when I was younger. I specifically remember, uh, getting a Carpenter video cassette and watching it. Um, my parents were too strict, but you know, I wasn't allowed to watch our movies for the most part and smuggling it in there. Yeah. How did the cultography book come about for you? For the critical books that I write, I look for series. Uh, and actually, I only have three. I, my, my dissertation, which was published as a book, Technologized Desire, Selfhood in the Body, Post-Capitalist Science Fiction. So that was my first excuse me, critical work that was published. And that's the only critical work that I've written that is sort of uh, not part of a series, but part of a, uh, uh, well, not part of anything. I had like a, a thesis about quote-unquote post-capitalist science fiction, and then I drew on texts that I, I thought were part of that and, and so forth. Since then, I need like a contract. A lot of academics, they just do precisely what I did with my dissertation. They just, you know, they, they get a certain thesis and then uh, uh, write and hope that they will be able to place it with a an ideally a university publisher. And that's cool, but I would rather have what I did for They Live as well as the next book. Uh, uh, I have a book coming out on J.G. Ballard at the end of the year. That's part of University of Illinois Press's Modern Masters of Science Fiction series. You write an extended proposal. If they like it, you, you sign the contract, and there you go. So I, I did the similar thing with They Live, which was, I, for a while, I, I thought it wasn't going to be published because originally... The Cultography series was a um, UK thing published by Walthall Flower Press, and they I don't know what happened. They lost their funding. Thankfully, Columbia University Press bought them. So they were like a smaller independent press, and now they're an imprint of Columbia University Press. And, it, you know, I don't, can't remember what happened, but uh, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I was very glad that uh, Columbia University Press bought them. I mean, now I can say, hey, Columbia University Press is one of the best university publishers in the nation, in the world. So now I'm like, yeah, I, I, I'm with Columbia University Press. But of course, it was just by, not accident, but luck, I guess, for me. After I had submitted it to the to Wallflower, I think that was like 2009 or 10, and it didn't come out until 2015. So there was a, there was a long interim there. But with the, the one I'm writing on, Ballard now is done, and that, that should be out later this year, and that was, there were no problems there. Univer the editors and everybody at University of Illinois Press is uh, the sharpest tacks, you know. Anyway, I, I kind of got to know the main editors of the cultographies. Uh, I never met them in person, but just on online. I got to know them, and they're great people, really sharp people, uh, interested uh, specifically, of course, in cult cinema. And the main guy has written like an anthology of, of uh, what is it? Actually, it might be my bookshelf here. Oh, yeah. He's the author with somebody else of the cult film Reader with Xavier Mendick. And uh, I actually used this for source material when I was writing my book because the purpose of those cultography books is not just to theorize or analyze the film in question. Each book is on one particular film. 
but also to place it within the context of cult cinema. And to do that, I had to do quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of research. So you talked about doing research for the book. I'm curious, how did you go about researching They Live? A lot of what I did is research the 1980s. There is actually quite a bit that has been published critically on the film. So I drew from a lot of, mostly there, there are books about Carpenter. There's a number, in fact, of books uh, about his, you know, his entire library of films. But the, one of the fun parts for me was, you know, going back and, and uh, doing research on the decade of the 80s, which was sort of my, uh, that's when I grew up. I was a teenager in the 80s. Yeah, it was so fun. But at the same time, I remembered how scary it was. And I talk about this, the, uh, you know, the Cold War was sort of raging and the threat of nuclear apocalypse. I, I remember being very anxious about that. Uh, for a variety of reasons, but it was always, you know, you turn the TV on, there were films like, what was that film, A Day After? That freaked me out. You know, I, I was sort of planning, and I'm sort of an anxious person in general, but yeah, I was planning uh, uh, on getting nuked, you know? That's what we were taught when we turned on the TV, but uh, that was, uh, okay, so it was it was uh, fun to sort of go back and uh, uh remember that because I had kind of filtered it out, you know, and I also did, you know, research about, uh, the beginning and evolution of blockbuster films, sort of where they, which came to prominence in the eighties. Uh, there's a section on, on big hair, like, uh, uh, you know, that, that mostly musicians had, but the eighties, that was sort of look, it's a very short sub section of one of the chapters in my They Live book, but I like it because it, it um, I, I, I use big hair as a metaphor for the, the excess that was characteristic of the era, uh, which is essentially the era of Reagan, right? A lot of economic excess. They Live is very much a critique of Reaganism and capitalism in the 1980s. And that's something I, I harp on quite a bit. Fred Easton Ellis probably wrote the best satire of yuppie culture, right? American Psycho. Are yuppies even around anymore? I don't know. Well, I, I think there's a yuppie in the White House. Who, <laughs> Trump? Was he? Yeah. He, okay. There you go. Because now it's all, you don't hear, you hear post-millennial and various permutations of what it is to be a post-millennial. But yuppie, then the term, the term came to exist in the 80s, I think, right? But yeah, just that whole greed is good philosophy, I think, exactly. really helped carry. Um, yeah. What's the movie from that? Uh, Wall Street. Uh, Wall Street. Wall Street, yeah, absolutely. Yep. And that's precisely what Carpenter is fighting against in that movie. And he does it in various other ways, more subtly in other movies, but I think that They Live is his most politically charged film. The film The Matrix, I always tell, I've taught They Live in the Matrix in, in classes before. And I think The Matrix is kind of an amped up version, I think, in many ways, but uh, specifically vis-a-vis it's, I think The Matrix is very much a critique of, of capitalism. And it's the same thing with, uh, uh, of course, in They Live, they, they use the sunglasses, but, uh, you know, The Matrix, they're jacked into, into The Matrix, into, into the pseudo-reality. There are a lot of elements that uh, are sort of the same in those two films. The Wachowski, I guess it's the Wachowski sisters now, right? 
they, they, they uh, um, referenced they live as a, uh, a derivation for for their narrative in the first Matrix. Yeah, I like what you had to say about the lenses, the Hoffman lenses, and just the the way that you know you can talk about different people throughout almost throughout history with the name of Hoffman and just the, how each one of those can kind of lend themselves to those lenses. Yeah. Are they ever called Hoff? Cause there's another book on they live that I mentioned by Jonathan Lethem. It's funny. I published something by him through my press. It was uh, his latest novel is a gambler's anatomy. He likes this uh, and his friends with another theorist that I've published Lawrence Ripples and, uh, Essentially, it's just a small book. It's called The Blot, but it's just a kind of theoretical discussion between them. So I've never met John, but I've, I've gotten to know him a little bit by email. He's a wonderful guy. But his book on They Live was not instrumental to mine, but it was very helpful. It's a little, it's a little, uh, I bring it up because he's the one that talks about, Ho- that first talked about Hoffman lenses. Uh, but when I read his book, he has a whole section on it. His book, I like um, his books different in mine in that it's sort of half creative. He does kind of reenactments of different scenes, and I was holy cow when I when I was I was almost done with mine when his came out. It's part of what is it? Soft Skull Press's Deep Focus series, which I think are books devoted to films. And I was freaked out. I mean, because he's a way <laughs> He's a way more successful novelist than I am, as well as a critic. And uh, I was like, God, this is he's just going to crush me. But I read through it, and they were sufficiently different. And, uh, you know, he gave me some fuel for ideas that I had in mind because I wasn't quite finished. But, yeah, that's that's where I, I got the idea. But that's where I realized that the uh, uh, lenses were Hoffman. Um, although, I think I mentioned that there was one thing that he didn't, mentioned in his book do you recall what that was because i don't i i go through and i i talk about the different illusions or significances or whatever for the lenses and what they mean right i remember the one that he brought up was the uh was it the inventor of lsd was named hoffman but i know you brought up well oh yeah it was a tv it was a tv i don't know where i found that out but uh television screen Screens, essentially, uh, uh, are important in They Live. Um, tel- the 80s is really when television, there is a spike in its evolution. But I like screen better because, you know, not just the, the screen for a television or movies, but the screen of the, the sunglasses, of course, ultimately the screen of perception, because that film's all about perception and how we're, how our perception is constructed. Uh, for better and for worse. It must have been kind of a surreal experience for you to put this book together, even have uh, Letham's book come out right before yours. You kind of answer some of the things, you bring up some of his points, you put this project to bed, and then it takes, what, four years before it comes out. You must have, I'm sure you didn't just forget about it. It was probably this nagging thing for you, but it must have been kind of a strange experience. Like, oh yeah, I wrote that book so long ago. I mean, it was a presidential term's worth. Yeah, exactly. And my writing process, whether it be criticism or fiction, is I I am, it's it's some, you know, I immerse myself in the the material. Um, It's all I think about uh, for however long it takes me to compose it. 
But once I send it off, I, I, it's like I, the They Live book, I think I said this to you in email. I forget what I write, what I wrote. So I, I, last night I went back and I mean, but I, everybody, you know, once you're done with something, you move on to something else. Naturally, you forget. But I really forget. And I was reading it, rereading it and saying, boy, this is a crummy assertion or boy, this is a good insight as if it was written by somebody else. Uh, I guess that's just uh, getting older. But no, it was it was pretty harrowing at the time because I was I didn't I didn't have tenure yet. And I, I got a sabbatical to research and write this. I did have other sort of avenues for publishing it, but not with as good of a press. I wanted to be published by this press. So that that's why I was really happy when Columbia University Press did it. But yeah, there's always that sort of... I think that happens a lot with academic books. In fact, I know that it does. Academics and university presses take so long often to <laughs> put things out. I'm the reviews editor for a journal called Extrapolation. It's a speculative fiction criticism. And, you know, we're backlogged. I, I try to get as much out there as I can, but we're backlogged, I think, two years. So when I, I'm just getting reviews ready for the next issue, it, uh, I, there are books from 2014. So, you know, ideally, I, I actually, no, no, I'm from two, I think 2014 is the, is the, uh, earliest, but, you know, ideally you want to, uh, uh, be, be timely, timely, you know, and, uh, that's not often the case in graduate school. I had, and I, I really needed the publications there for getting a job. I had, it was the journal of popular culture. And I wrote an essay. I think it's my best essay I've ever written. I don't know if I'll ever top it. It was on army of darkness. And it was a sort of, uh, I, I submitted it to journal of popular culture, schizosophy of the medieval dead. Army of Darkness. So it was a kind of Deluso Guitarian reading of that. I think it was four years from the time I submitted it to acceptance to coming out. So it was like I sent it out the beginning of my graduate uh, uh, career and it came out near the end. But at least, you know, I had it. Anyway, yeah, academic, academics move like snails. I'm really curious looking at your bibliography, the uh, series of biographies that you've done. <laughs> What do you think of them? I, I'm just going off of the the titles here, and um, it's interesting that you, you know, just the the choice. I, I can see kind of Hitler and and Sigmund Freud together, but Frederick Douglass, right. I was very surprised. <laughs> Though you know, Frederick Douglass, he's an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is being recognized more and more. So these aren't biographies; they're, they're completely fake. If they're biographies, they're they're auto-hagiographies, if that's how you say it. They're about me and what I think. So I'm, I'm looking at the Hitler biography right now. It, the, the, this is the first chapter. It's very short. This book is not about Adolf Hitler, the German dictator, mass murderer, art school reject, cocaine and methamphetamine addict, and so forth. I called it Hitler, the terminal biography, so you would buy it. Everybody likes to read about Hitler. I won't mention him again. Go to the next page, please. They're about a lot of things, and if they're about me. It's, it's very sort of playful and absurdist. But uh, one thing that the reason I picked Hitler, Freud, and Douglas is because I've you know I've always had an interest in all of those figures and reading about them and by them. Frankly, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Why did you choose, or how did you choose to write about uh, J.G. Ballard for the uh, University of Illinois? 
before writing the proposal, which was a long proposal uh, for this book, I had only read a couple of stories by Ballard and Crash and maybe something, uh, parts of the Atrocity Exhibition. You know, he has he's published, I believe, 18 novels and over 100 stories. Among other, you know, uh, nonfiction, he wrote a lot of reviews and, and short essays. But uh, I wanted to read his canon, and I knew that uh, if I got a contract, it would force me to do it. Because I would, if I did, if I, that's one of the reasons I love getting contracts, because I sometimes, depends on the subject, but sometimes my capacity to immerse myself in uh, uh, an author or a uh, uh, you know, a topic of some kind is not as concerted as it would be without the contract. Uh, I don't think I've ever told anybody at the press this, but yeah, so it was great. I, uh, I, I read everything. Uh, and actually the, I, I rev, not revised, but, uh, I used to research in a different way than I currently do after writing this Ballard book. Uh, it really sharpened, I think, and honed my sort of research and research skills. And I think critical writing skills too. His writing is a kind of creative geometry, an imaginative geometry that I'm so, and I knew I could tell that it was from reading Crash, especially. Although people have the wrong idea about Crash. Crash is, uh, he did not write that much about sex. Some people totalize his canon based on Crash and the Atrocity Exhibition. Um, there's, you know, uh, uh, sex or, or techno-erotica, let's say, and some of his other work, but for the most part, it's non-existent. And I didn't know that, but that was the best sort of bullshit I ever spread around because in my proposal, what I wrote in the proposal was based upon essentially what other folks, what I what I sort of quickly read by other critics of Ballard. And I ended up going in a very different direction from that initial proposal, but it was accepted. And uh, it is definitely the best thing I've ever written. I, I think fiction or nonfiction. I'm so proud of it. And that's not usually, that's not the case. I actually, I remain proud of my They Live book, but most of the books I write, I, uh, I can't look at them again once they're done. Well, what are you working on these days? We just put the finishing touches on the Ballard book. I think I, I don't think I have anything, any other responsibilities there. Uh, I'm working on a book. I'm always working on stories kind of on the side. But uh, the next book is, you know, Daniel Paul Schraber is. He wrote this book called Memoirs of My Nervous Illness. It's published in uh, 1901, I believe. And he was a German doctor and judge who had a series of schizophrenic breakdowns. Freud wrote a, um, a famous study on him, and there's been a lot of books written about him. Uh, have, you seen, have you seen the film Dark City? Oh, okay, yeah. That is based... It, 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 I, I wish I would have written that film. Uh, that's based on his memoirs, but it's a science fictionalization of his memoirs. In that movie, Kiefer Sutherland is called... Doc, his name is Dr. Schraber. Uh, although he's not the Schraber character, the main one is, uh, Schra the, the Schraber of the film is Rufus Sewell. That's how you say his name. Anyway, Schraber has bled into the sort of contours of popular culture in the 20th century, now the 21st, in so many interesting ways. So I'm essentially trying to 
formulate a, a kind of creative criticism of his book, for which the readership will be almost zero. But I do, <laughs> I do have a publisher for it, Stalking Horse Press, uh, the the editor in chief of whom I'm friends with, and he seems to be really into it. So I always wanted to do it. it it's really esoteric and kind of out there. That's my next sort of thing. In addition to most of my time is spent um, creating a new program at the campus where I work, uh, a program in writing and media and digital literacy to replace our English program. Uh, English English programs are sort of not just here, but the demographic of students here is such that English literature is not going to get them a job. And that's what they're interested in. And I think this is the way things will go in the next uh, couple of decades. It takes like a year to put together, and I spend most of my time doing that, in addition to, you know, negotiating the, the daily hoo-ha of, of uh, fielding faculty complaints and all, and student complaints and all that. Well, thank you so much. This has been great. Sure. Thank you for having me. It's good talking to you. Next up, we have associate producer of They Live, as well as producer of many other John Carpenter films. That's Miss Sandy King. You didn't necessarily go to school for film, but you were into the visual arts. I was a painter. I was accepted to UCLA in pictorial arts, which was drawing and painting. And uh, the Fine Arts College had, you know, the art department and the film department and the theater arts department. So we were all up there together. Frankly, the film department, everyone going to, to school there was friendlier than the people in the art department. The art department is pretty cutthroat. Uh, so I had friends both, you know, who were painters and then who were animators and, and then who were filmmakers. That was pretty much who I hung out with. I tended to take classes. I, I didn't listen to any advisors, so I took whatever classes interested me for four years. And I accidentally fulfilled three majors, both my art major a film major, and an English major, and then managed to have my diploma taken away for failing German three three times. So I never got my diploma <laughs> in anything. <laughs> but, you know, it was a real vital time. It was, it was really fun. Great people were coming through the film department. And one of the things I realized was that I was not going to make a living as a painter, and I wasn't in the design department, so I didn't learn anything particularly useful. But I went over into the animation department and was having a great time there. And when there was a great instructor and his best buddy was Chuck Jones, who used to come over. So that was incredible. And I thought then that I would go into animation. There were uh, two guys, Lewis Hall and Carlos Gutierrez, that I then went to work with. And, you know, we made the film Antimatter, which got them an Academy Award. My destination was Disney, which was you know, the mecca for everyone going into animation. But at the same time, I was working on all my friends' movies. I was always the one when you had to make a movie and do all the, the cuts in the camera and things like that. I would be the girl getting chased through the botanical gardens and attacked and things like that because nobody else would. Or I would help build the sets for Randy Cook and things like that. So my heart wound up being in both places. I wound up getting really fascinated by live action first brought in because of the visuals and loving the cinematography and loving the storytelling, but also just because it was a really dynamic place to be. 
And when I got the chance and got hired by Disney, I got kind of afraid to commit to the solitary lifestyle of an animator. You know, you signed on at Disney. It was a real regimented life. Animation in those days could be really solitary. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I'm not cut out for that. I made a decision to turn off the path and go into live action. So, you know, these were just kind of all the choices I've made in my life. I got a lot of background that helped me do what I went into, but it wasn't necessarily my plan. As you might see from my career, I had no plan. Um, (laughs) I just went to new opportunities. Well, you were a script supervisor for a lot of years, and I'm curious how you kind of got into that. I had a choice of continuity or caterer on the first live-action films that were presented to me. I knew I could cook, but I knew I could do continuity because I'd been shooting all my own animation. And that seemed a lot more interesting to me. I lied my way into my first AFI film. A guy named Rand Holston, who went on to become a really successful agent at CAA, was a production fellow up at AFI. And I went in and said, uh, yeah, I can do that. Matching, you know, I had to, I had to make cells match. And I had to know screen direction. He said, what kind of book do you keep? And I said, oh, the usual. You know, they were hard up for people to work on films. And I walked out of there and went, book. And I, um, I said, well, show me what you're used to. And he'd show me somebody's book. And I went, oh, man, I have no clue what this is. But people who were cutting their movie were at lunch. And I went in and stole two pages out of their book and Xeroxed it and put it back. And went home to figure it out and then talked to another friend who was interning on the taking of Pelham 123 in New York. The script supervisor on that, I think it was Julie Pitcannon, somebody there was kind enough to send me some pages with an explanation of what everything meant. And basically, I faked my way into the, the first movie I did. Well, fortunately, it was an AFI film and I did, you know, I wasn't risking someone's millions. <laughs> and, you know. And then that led into me doing more and more movies and learning my job, much like other people on student films, except there's only one of you, so you really can't screw it up. But it helped. I'd had a background in in um, still photography, so I understood lenses. I knew screen direction from animation. And so kind of everything that I had been doing did lead that way, and I really had a mind for detail and puzzles. And I love script supervision. I still love it. I like to do the second units on our film. I think it's a really cool job. I don't want you to be the magician who I'm asking to explain the trick, but can you tell me a little bit more about the book? It sounds fascinating. Script supervisors hold the book on the set. And what it is, it's it's the script. It's the shooting script. And on the facing pages, you're keeping notes of every time the camera rolls for the editor. And each night you're turning in those notes um, to the editorial staff. So you're a liaison between production, the shooting crew, and the editorial staff. And you keep the official uh, log of the shooting day, how many setups uh, you've shot, how many pages you've shot, how many minutes of the films you've shot. And you line the script page with how much coverage each shot is so that at a glance, the editor can see how much coverage he has of each shot, how many pieces of film there should be he has to work with, what the slate numbers are, where to mm. find it. 
And then you're keeping the continuity notes per take, you know, and what went wrong, what went right, what what the director likes about them, uh, and the matching notes. You know, in England, it's called continuity because you're supposed to keep things happening the same way, the cigarette lengths and the matching of the hands and things like that. But overall, continuity matters more, which is continuity of tone and uh, performance levels, particularly if you're shooting out of continuity and you may be doing scenes months apart. And those notes are also in the book because nobody can remember all that. One of your earliest jobs as script supervisor was working with John Cassavetes with The Killing of a Chinese Bookie. Now, the way that he shoots things, I would imagine that that has to be a very tough job for a script supervisor. It was tough, but it was really fun um, because you really got even more inside a different kind of process where he came from being an actor. He encouraged the rehearsals were improvisation. Um, The actors had to show up knowing the script as written. Uh, the first rehearsal would be as written, and then they would riff off that and improvise, and I would uh, retype the script after rehearsals, and they would have to come back and shoot per the revised script. So in each location, I'd be sitting backwards on a toilet somewhere, retyping the script after rehearsals, <laughs> and going off of that. It was interesting because he also often was one of his own camera operators, and was partly losing some of his eyesight by that point. So it was always the challenge for the first assistant cameraman to keep up with him and keep him in focus because he couldn't always tell if he was in focus. It, it was a it was a fun show to do, and everybody was really dedicated. So did they do most of their ad-libbing and, and searching out of, of just how the scenes play before the cameras would roll, and then was it pretty locked down once they would start shooting? Yeah, yeah. It was extensive rehearsal. But then once once you were shooting, most of that was done. I mean, every once in a while, there's other stuff thrown in. But he was more disciplined to the in the the actual shooting. He was working low budget, and he wasn't going to waste a lot of film with everybody messing around. That's got to be a real challenge with somebody like a Timothy Carey, who just seems like a complete wild card. Oh yeah, yeah. No, well, I mean that that he was a wild card, and he was crazy. So you know, there were certain unknowables that would go on. But then everybody else was really disciplined. You know, that was, again, something that you learn when you have, and and that's happened on a few sets I've been on, where you have the wild card who's considered valuable for what he can bring to the table. Everybody else knows to roll with it. And you know where your cutting pieces are going to go that accommodate that. So both your director your cameraman, your editor, everybody knows how you're going to make that work, and even your other actors. You often have those people that are either considered dear to someone's heart or really valuable for the spontaneity they bring, and you give yourself out. That's where great editing comes in. That's where camera movement comes in and um, the tolerance of others in the scene. Now, you worked on some movies that... I would say they're low budget, but they're very near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. Like uh, in your early days, st- stuff like Blue Sunshine. People <laughs> well, still love I knew that you were going to say Blue Sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Blue Sunshine, Incredible Melting Man, yeah. you know, Death Sport. These are movies that are still with us today and that people just love these movies to bits. 
can you tell me what was it like working on those? I mean, I know that Cassavetes wasn't working with a, a big budget, but these had to be even more of a challenge because it seemed like they might have been a little fast and loose. Well, again, you know, you were dealing, one of the reasons these are still loved and are st- still watched is you actually had some really great people working on them, using them as their break-in movies. I mean, Incredible Melt- Melting Man was a showcase film for Rick Baker. And even though there were multiple crews shooting all over Los Angeles at the same time, or multiple crews uh, we had three crews working at the same time at the Sunland Power Station, and you'd have screw-ups like somebody walking in saying, wait a minute, the other unit just lost the actor's other ear. And you're kind of going, well, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We fucked up. You still had people that went on from those days to make some of the biggest films, you know, 10 years later. So there was a lot of talent working their way up at the time. There's an incredible melting man. There's a shot where the murders occur, and it goes from night into morning where the, the cop cars pull up in this big 360-degree pan. That was pre, you know, having a computerized camera to lock it off, do all the fancy moves, and all the matching was done by us to make that work. And it's still one of the things I'm proudest of as a script supervisor. So there's really nice work within the frames of a silly-ass movie where people drop acid and their eyeballs, you know, turn silver and their hair falls out. You know, there's really neat little pieces in there of really high-end work that people have a lot of fun laughing at the other part, but they can still get involved in the movie. Deathsport, yeah, you know, we had, you know, Yamaha 150s dressed up in cardboard that, you know, we knew they were going, ring, ding, 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 you know, as they come over the hill, and then you put turbo engines over them. But, you know, it's magic. We're all masters of illusion. We're, sp- we're supposed to baffle you with, with uh, magic. And in those days, we had to really baffle you, or at least show you a good time. Like you said, Blue Sunshine, I mean, that movie, it, it's just such a wonderful watch. And it, <laughs> I'm so glad that it's kind of finally, you know, I know that it's gotten its due over the years. It's one of those movies that you just heard about, at least for me, for years and years. And then when I finally saw it, I was like, wow, this is what all the hype was about. This is amazing. Well, you know, you had, you had Zalman, Zalman King. You know, I think if you didn't have him so utterly invested, you know, you would have been doomed. But you have him really giving it his all. And you, you have a few linchpin people in there really trying to, to carry you through. Because like I said, you know, there's, there's some pretty silly stuff. What you really had in all the cases and all those films was, you know, people busting their asses to get something, you know, from the title to the end and entertain you at the same time. Nowadays, I find that there's a lot of people that really don't, there's a certain number of people who invest in movies for a quick return because they can get a title out there and sell it either online or, or on DVDs. And I don't think they care as much about entertaining you. And consequently, some of this stuff doesn't last in anyone's memory. No matter how silly what we did was, there was somebody behind. Roger actually cared. Roger Corman cared about entertaining people. He actually, there were some really lame excuses for some of the movies that we worked on, but you really tried hard to make sure somebody had a good time. 
and uh, you know the second unit's rocked, your action rocked. In some way, you tried to deliver and not make anybody pissed off that they paid their money to go. It seems like things kind of changed for you in the early '80s. I mean, you're working then with you know, films by Walter Hill and Michael Mann and Francis Ford Coppola. Did it feel different for you? Was that a, a step in the right direction for you? There was more money. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of bad weather. Uh, hurricanes in Georgia and, and snow in Chicago. You know, yeah, I mean, you always hope that you're getting to do uh, bigger stories um, and learn stuff from more people. I mean, working working with Coppola was fascinating was great. He's a great storyteller. Um, the crews were really amazing. I, I was averaging 104 hours a week. It was grueling. Uh, and it was Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is like being sent to hell. But Steve Burham was this astounding director of photography, and we were on Rumblefish making a black and white movie and trying to recreate looks of things like The Bicycle Thief and get the look of black and white when it, there was more silver in the emulsion. And, you know, great production designers painting the shadows on the walls of, of the sets and throwing glycerin on the night streets. So after, besides watering them down, they throw glycerin down and glitter. You know, those are the kinds of things that it's really fun to be involved in because you're really, again, it's about making magic. It's about being illusionist. Movies to me are fascinating on on every level, whether you're doing action movies and you're getting to see great rigging and organizing of great stunts, makeup effects, getting a chance to work with certain actors who are pretty astounding or getting to watch them put glitter and glycerin on a street for an effect. I love it all. To me, it's a circus coming to town. Once you hit Starman... That seemed to be, uh, again, a rather major sea change for you, because then it was you and John Carpenter working together for so many years after that. The greatest form of teamwork, uh, you know, as a script supervisor, the idea was you get in the director's head and you're an extension of him. You're keeping, as I said, it's not just about matching the length of a cigarette. It's matching the tone. It's remembering what the energy was perhaps three months before when you were shooting on a location, you're coming back to the stage. And my favorite collaborations were when I could really get in sync with the director and know what it was he wanted and when he was strained from it because they have so much on their plate. And all I'm looking at is the set. And I can say, you know, the attitude was a little different three months ago. Are you remembering blah, blah, blah? And they kind of go, oh, shit, no, you're right. Or, no, I've decided to change. And you get into the creative process with them. Coming from an art background, that to me is the most satisfying. So when I met John, who a good friend had told me I would be in sync with and I'd probably really like to work with, that was the case. We were in sync. I could be that extension that he hadn't found in a script supervisor yet. I understood where he was going. I understand to this day, pretty much, I can see once he finds his point of view for each movie, where it's going to be, what he's going to expect to see, um, and if it's not there. So it's a real comfortable 
a working relationship. So tell me about They Live. Well, that was the film where you moved from, or you were script supervisor and associate producer. How did that work out? Well, I was also then on Prince of Darkness, but because of an, an in-joke side bet I had with Jody Tellen, a costume designer, on screen it only says script supervisor, but it's in a main title single card credit because of a side bet that I couldn't get that. But I was actually associate producer on that as well. And I've never understood why no one knew that was a joke. But at any rate, you know, it was a natural evolution because everyone kept coming to me anyway for those answers. And I was doing that job anyway. And I had been in commercials and on other people's shows, a production manager and a second unit director and things like that. So it wasn't that tough. So what was making They Live like for you? It was great. I mean, it was something we believed in. It was a time much like now where politically we saw certain things on the horizon that seemed worth commenting on. And you could couch it in a sci-fi action film, which outside the United States was totally taken as a political satire. And was and what we had to do was position it with journalists instead of publicists so that it was covered more for what it was. You know, our hardest sell to the studio was Roddy Piper, but it was a low-budget movie, so we were able to do what we wanted. We were able to sell it based on a, a one-paragraph synopsis uh, because of a deal that John had. We had a pretty good time doing it. Why was Roddy Piper a tough sell at that point? Come on, he was a you know he's a wrestler, and at that point, you know, John's always been ahead of the curve, both with style of movies, you know, whether whether he's doing teen horror flicks or uh, creature features with the thing or knowing that a wrestling star could be a crossover to our genre audience. We knew Roddy from the wrestling world and he saw something about him that could that could sell blue collar every man. He really felt that he could pull off that character. Frankly, nobody else believed he could. And um, we had total control over casting, so we had to take him. His chemistry is so good with everybody in that film, especially Keith David. Those scenes of those guys together is just, they're some of my favorites. They rocked it. And Keith, Keith is, well, you know, Keith is just stellar. Keith is just an all-around great guy. And, and he helped Roddy a lot with acting, really uh, helped him through logistics of a lot of filmmaking. Roddy had done the Hell Comes to Frogtown, and that was about it. Jeff Amata, our stunt coordinator, was great with both of them. And we had three weeks of rehearsals for all the fights, so it made Keith look like he was a, a great physical fighter. And Roddy helped Keith with the fights. So I think that it made them a great team that way. How does it feel for you looking around? Like I was just watching a documentary about punk rock the other day, and there's a guy sitting in front of one of those Andre the Giant obey signs. How does it feel to have such an impact on popular culture? You can call me Empress of the North. I just think it's cool if people take it the right... There's been an interesting phenomenon that happened where they live got uh, kind of taken up by the extreme right and um, the alt-right and and, uh, some neo-Nazis because in, in their demented fashion, they decided that it was speaking against the rise of the third world and not understanding that it was actually speaking against 
the misuse of capitalism and and all the things we see happening now, the same way it was happening in the rise of Reaganism. So I think sometimes people don't 100% read it properly, much as I hate to, to uh, you get pedantic about it. I kind of think if it, if it uh, breeds a little revolution in people and, and causes them to think, it's a good thing. You don't have to worry about getting pedantic on this show. We're, we're all about that. It just gets a little shocking sometimes when you go, wow, that's what you walked away with it from. Huh. Okay. Too bad. Well, you talked about having to kind of, uh, when you're publicizing the movie, to reach out more to journalists than to necessarily publicists. How was that effort, and how was the film received when it came out? It was great. It it, it opened number one against against U2, Rattle and Hum, and a bunch of other things. It, it was which surprised the studio. The studio did not believe in it. Not that they disagreed with it, but they didn't see its commercial value. We had lots of of turmoil going over how to market it, what to do. I said, look, you should, we should have a, cause you always tie money into radio promoted screens. I said, there should be a food drive. There should be a whole thing for the homeless tie into national street aid. We did manage to raise thousands of pounds of food. It was leading into the holidays and they were surprised anyone responded because they said young people don't care about the homeless. They don't care about. And I said, if you, stick to that, I will give an interview and say that you've said that. And they were having problems with The Last Temptation of Christ at that point. I found that blackmail worked. But we had a great advocate. There was a, there was a, a great guy over in marketing, uh, Perry Katz, who, and the head of the, uh, I can't remember his name, it was Tom, a uh, guy who was the uh, art director, who I worked with on the um, materials, the, the one sheet, Roddy with the glasses. And they understood what we were getting at. So marketing was behind us tying into those things. Publicity was really fighting it because they wanted to tie into things that really wouldn't work. They did. They they weren't understanding. They wanted to tie into wrestling. I'm going, this isn't a wrestling movie. This is about the underclass. This is about these things. It's a political movie that you can spoon feed people this message because it's a wrestler and action and we put aliens in it. I think that you'll find that, that if you do these things, we will, we'll, we'll do great. And so we did. We opened number one and then they immediately changed the campaign. And, you know, it was a, a election season and they were all convinced that George Bush was going to be defeated. And we said, really, really don't tie into the election. And of course they did and they changed the ad campaign and, and, um, we look stupid. But that, did that happen? You know, sometimes you have to look at, it's about the, it's about a message about your life. It's about who, you know, John has a theme. What What is it that makes you human? And those are bigger themes than Democrat and Republican. You know, other kind of trivial stuff. It's like, who are you? And that's the same thing as it, as it is in The Thing. It's the same thing as it is in They Live. You know, who are you and what makes you human? Well, I can even see that in something like Ghosts of Mars coming through pretty that seemed like that must have been a fun production. Ghost of Mars? Yeah, the studio was rough on that one. We got caught in the middle of a, of a kind of a po- politics between Screen Gems and, and Columbia, which had nothing to do with, with us and with, with the shooting. But, yeah, you know, it was cool. We have 55 acres of Mars out in New Mexico. It was a giant set. The Zia Pueblo was, the, was great to us. 
that's where we shot that that White Sands National Monument is a giant gypsum mine on their Pueblo. And that was all painted red with beet juice, biodegradable biodegradable beet juice that I just sweated bullets would actually biodegrade. Every time we painted another five acres of it, I would just go, oh, God, please make it so we're not buying 50,000 pink flamingos when this is open. Because all I can think is, what are we going to do with that much plaster if it doesn't work? You know, another one that you worked on that didn't seem to really do much, at least in my mind anyway, that didn't do a whole lot when it came out, but now is hailed as a classic, is In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah. Uh, again, that was one that Europe embraced. Again, a lot depends on how your studio head views your film at the time, how much support you get and where it opens. New Line at the time, it was a, a little bit of a, a, a love-hate relationship between the two studio heads. And I don't think they 100%, you know, it, it, it didn't seem... The U.S. wasn't as much into the kind of conceptual horror right at that point. Um, you know, the ad campaign, I thought, was actually really good. There was a really brilliant um, kind of crazy guy who did the posters and stuff for it. But it didn't get a lot of push from New Line. And I'm not sure people here, people here caught onto it later. Europe liked it more. And there's also kind of two factions of of horror fans. You can kind of tell there's... There's the the Halloween thing people, and then there's the Prince of Darkness, Mouth of Madness people. And they seem to really have different approaches to what kind of horror they like. I mean, you can see H.P. Lovecraft going through so much of John Carpenter's work. And I just love that You know, the, the thing always fits into that just as easily as, of course, in the Mouth of Madness. And then, yeah, right there in the middle, having Prince of Darkness. I mean, that is another one where when that came out, I barely heard anything about it but then as time went on it just seemed like more and more people were falling over themselves to talk about what a great movie this is and i completely agree that's really nice i was known for a long time as the one that produced the movies that didn't make it and now i get really shocked when people go oh you did that really cool movie i go huh well that's nice i think part of it comes from being coming from being a crew person i've never looked at my career as being one based on the box office success, you know, as a crew person, you you have no control over the final product of what you're making. You just try and do the best job you can. And I really rate our movie's success based on did we do what we meant to do? And did we make the best possible film? Is it is it what we tried to make? So I'm pretty happy with each of the movies that, that I produced. I, I look at them and go, yeah, okay, that's what we meant to do. And you can't gauge, you know, what happens in the world that week, what people are going to be into that week. All I can do is try and facilitate the crew and John getting the best product out there possible and telling the best stories we can. And if we do that, they'll hold up and one day they'll find their audience. And I, I think that's proven pretty true. Now, I don't tend to ask about people's personal lives, but I'm curious, when did you and John Carpenter get married? In a land far away. No, we got married. Uh, we finally got married in 1990, a long time ago. Yeah, I guess that is uh-huh. a long time ago, isn't it? Yeah. 27 uh-huh. years, something? Yeah. Wow. Yep. That would have been right after They Live when you guys were working on, what was the next one after They Live? Was it? Uh, Memoirs of Invisible Man. Yeah, so we were in prep. 
for uh, memoirs. You uh, even, well, you were what, executive producer of uh, Body Bags? And producer. How was that for you to kind of switch it up with that? Because then you've gone on to be executive producer of like the Vampire sequel, and then um, I know there's something else that I'm completely forgetting. Oh, you must be thinking of Kristen McAuliffe CNN special. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> no, I mean, there's been a few things, but yeah, I do whatever interests me. Um, I, you know, it it all depends on on timing and w- whether there's a a useful spot for me. If I can't be useful and somebody just needs some advice or something, they they don't need to give me a credit. If there's time for me to be meaningfully involved and I can do something for it, great. What seems like, and you've probably said this early on in this interview, but the more I'm talking to you, the more it just seems like you are so much about collaboration. Oh, yeah. That's that's what's fun about movies. I mean, movies or, or the comic books I do or... Kind of anything. It's it's much more interesting the kind of team you can put together, the kind of of interaction you can have with people, how much you can elevate each other, how much you can make a project better by bringing really great. I mean, for me, building a great team that riffs off each other to make something better is, is what it's all about for me. I find that in comics. I find it in the TV projects we do. I find it in movies. I mean, one of the most fun things is how do you make this better? How do you how do you cast a great ensemble on camera and behind the camera? There's nothing more fun than seeing everybody go. It, it, when you really hit the wall and you have a problem, what are the best minds to solve it? You know, then, then I I think that's the, the key. Tell me about the comics. I'm curious what your role is in in doing the Storm King comics. I make them. Now I got I got really annoyed. It, well, it kind of came about a couple of ways. One was that, you know, our our audience, John's fans, are definitely consumers of comics, gaming. You know, they, they, they cross all of those boundaries. And people have come to John a whole lot of the time wanting him to put his name on comics, but they're generally not great comics. They want his name to sell them. And so he doesn't do it. We had a story that we thought was pretty cool many years ago and was considered too dark for television and too too this for that and all kinds of things. And I'd gotten fed up with a bunch of meetings where people really just wanted to change the story so that they could do it non-union in North Carolina or some other thing. And a comment was made during a meeting at a studio that, I'd said that Los Angeles was a character in this thing and it should look this way and it should be this way. And some little development under assistance said, well, it's not like it's a graphic novel or anything. And I looked at them and I said, actually, it is. And I got kicked by a writing partner and an agent at the same time. And we walked out and said, what was that about? And I said, I've had it. It's a comic book. And that's how Asylum came about. I came home and John said, so what's happening with the TV show? And I said, it's not. It's a comic book. And that's how we got into comics. We then spent the next two years researching how you actually make comics. And because you can't just decide you know how to do that. Though, again, my animation experience made it a little more understandable because they go together a lot the same way. You know, that's how we put a foot in. And then we found out we really liked doing it. Tales for a Halloween Night, the yearly anthology, came about um, just because we thought the comic stores needed something from John at Halloween. And it went from being a little 
three-story floppy to everybody being drunk at San Diego Comic-Con that year and volunteering more stories. So it became a bigger book, and now it's a yearly anthology. And now we're also putting together um, John Carpenter's uh, Tales of Science Fiction. Yeah, it's going to be pretty bitchin', I have to say. It's it's pretty neat, and that's going to be a series of miniseries, monthly monthly book that so far I think is really going to rock, and that should start uh, mid-year. It sounds like you're continuing to build up those teams where you now you know you're dealing with writers and artists and pencilers and inkers and all these kind of things rather than you know your editors and the sound guy and the lighting guy but still doing the same thing of putting these teams together of people to work on a creative project (laughs) i can't help it it just keeps happening but it's so much fun and what the comic people aren't used to is bringing the movie way of doing things to them which is i think i'm a lot friendlier than they're used to yeah, I try and get everybody together when we're in the same city at a convention, and they actually get to see each other. And you know, I I give Storm King dinners, and I say thank you a lot. You know, I I'm really appreciative of their talents. The the comic community has been really nice to us, and uh, I appreciate that because they usually look at the film people with great suspicion. They they, they wait for us to rape and plunder their industry. For the most part, we just came in to do a, a cool comic. We really weren't looking for anything else. We love comics. I like doing the conventions. I only do about five a year. But we, we really like to, to to go and and see all the great comic creators. And I like being able to to hire great people to do fun things and make good stories in another medium. Can you tell me about the uh, Dark Child project? No, I don't think anybody cares about it. I think we worked up a really great script and had a great team. Uh, that really wanted to do it, but um, I haven't found anybody that wanted a girl to be a monster. Uh, They seem very scared of that notion. I don't know why. I think it's a really cool idea. I think it's a a great uh, allegorical tale for what disaffected young kids go through. I think that tweeners need something besides sparkly vampires or girls with bows and arrows. You know, so far, I haven't had anybody just go, wow, we really want a girl that turns into monsters. I haven't given up, but I'm I'm not hitting the sweet spot on somebody wanting to, uh, you know, it's not an inexpensive project to make. You have to have some realistic transformations, and and unfortunately, she does a lot of damage as well. You know, we, we've got a cool team standing by and some, and some great art and some great previs all done the day that somebody wants a a badass chick tearing up stuff. But um, so far, no go. Well, you know, women are so scary to most people these days. How dare you group together and, and march against the president? Oh, oh my gosh, we can't handle it. Fuck. I mean, for Christ's sake. And he said he said he didn't hear them. Well, you know, I got news for him. I better start listening. What a week this has been. It's astounding to me that 50% of this country was this dumb. But I can't imagine that they're going to stay with blinders on for past two weeks. I don't know. I mean, the hits just keep coming, don't they? Oh, yeah. Every, well, I can't even say every day because it feels like every hour. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I, I've got to say, I'm, I'm really proud of all the, the women on Team Storm King because ladies from my company were marching in New York, Washington, D.C., and L.A., Really proud of him. I did. I did promise to post bail for anybody that got arrested. 
Um, that's a, a hallmark of my administration. <laughs> I spent most of the spring of 70 in jail. So it looks like I, I, as one famous gift that's out there says, I thought I was too old for this shit, but I guess we're back in the saddle. There's certain underlying themes in, in most of the work that I get involved with. So, uh, I guess we just have to keep turning it out, huh? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're going to be doing this special about They Live is, you know, again, put on the fucking glasses and see what's really going on well, here, folks. You know, he's Come kind of on. making it so we don't even have to put them on. It's astounding. And, you know, it was astounding when uh, I dared post it during the election uh, on one of John's fan pages. I posted someone had, had done the obvious, putting Trump in the They Live face. People went ape shit and said, you know, the thing I thought was really silly, uh, John Carpenter should should stick to movies, not get into politics. And and I, I had to answer and say, obviously, you don't watch his movies. Really, get a grip. And by the way, you don't need to be on this page. Wow. You know, I'm sorry. The, art, the arts are where you speak up. And when the arts stop speaking up, we're in deep trouble. Yeah, when people were uh, trying to, you know, tear down Meryl Streep for taking oh, a stand. Oh, hell no. Yeah, I mean, I know they did it, but but no, 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 no. No, no, You know, that, that, that is just absolutely not. As soon as you say someone can't say something. I mean, I, I will stand up for for people I disagree with saying stuff. You cannot, particularly with the way things are going, you know, as someone said last night, I dread that 20 years from now we'll be reading the diary of some little Muslim girl. You know, this is not okay. You know, this time, you know, when they come for my neighbor, it's going to be hell no, motherfucker. This cannot go on. You know, anybody that stays silent and, and is complicit. I don't care what we lose through speaking out. You lose more by staying silent. I saw one yesterday. It was... uh First they came for the gays, then the Muslims, then the Jews, and there was this whole list, and then it was Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. No, and and, and that is entirely what is going to happen. I, had to, I wrote an email to Elizabeth Warren saying, you confirm Ben Carson? What is wrong with you? You give a good speech and you vote for Ben Carson? None of those people are qualified no, there whatsoever. No, I mean, perhaps, perhaps uh, the general. Uh, well, which general? I mean, it's surrounding himself. It looks more like a hunter, uh, you know, mad dog. But uh, I, I cannot understand this. I cannot understand everybody. You know, I, I keep trying to think. Okay, they're laying low so that they can hit him later. Wins later. Right. You got to stop that shit right now. Yeah. You don't let the snake in the garden. You don't put the fox in charge of the hen house. And that's so what it feels like. Right yeah. Now. And, and it's, we're, we're crossing, okay, which line, which line, which line, you know, and now you're, you're going on with the absurd. How many of these private accounts does everybody have in their administration? And they're talking about the voter fraud and the multiple uh, voter registrations. And his whole family has multiple registrations. This is just silly nonsense. It's going to get really serious if people don't, like you say, put on the glasses, wake up. I know people are thinking they live as cute right now, and they're all flocking to it, and they're all posting the obey signs. Maybe next time they'll show up and vote. Yeah, that's the toughest thing. When you said half the country is, is stupid and, and voted for this guy, it's like, well, not really. It's like half of a half of a country because half the people didn't even vote. Yep. I can't even but understand that. But by not that. voting, they voted. And that's, that's the sad part. 
by not showing up, you made your wishes known. You, you take so much for granted and you can't, you can't do that. You know, you can't coast. You can't be that, that silly ass generation that my generation accuses you of being. Seriously, dude, get off your mother's couch and go vote. Do something. You know, you're going to get your weed taken away. You know, I always believe there's hope. I always believe there's hope in speaking out. I believe there's there's hope in activism. And I believe there's hope in the arts. Well, keep fighting the good fight. Irish, I can't help it. Ms. King, thank you so much for your time today. This has thank been wonderful. You. Take care. Next up, we have the actor who plays Gilbert in They Live, Mr. Peter Jason. Growing up uh, in Hollywood, did you always want to be an actor? No. Actually, I didn't really grow up in Hollywood. I was born in Hollywood, uh, but my dad was overseas fighting the, the, the Nazis. And, uh, and then when he came back, we moved to uh, the uh, low-income barracks area of uh, Wilmington, which is down in Long Beach. And we were there for uh, about six months until my little sister, who was four and I was two, I think, came in one time from carrying my, holding my hand from the playground. And she says, Daddy, what does fuck mean? And he looked at my mom and he says, it means we're moving. <laughs> and then we moved to uh, down to Balboa, California, which is uh, now incorporated in the city of Newport Beach, California. And it's a peninsula down on a beautiful little harbor, a little bay there. Very lovely area. I grew up on the beach. And the ocean was my front yard and the bay was my backyard. So it's a pretty cool place to grow up as a kid. My senior year in high school, this girl, Janie Brubaker, who I had the hots for, talked me into auditioning for for the senior play, which was The Man Who Came to Dinner. I'd never even seen a play at that point in my life. And uh, I got the lead, and I went out for opening night curtain call, and the audience exploded into applause, and I went, ooh, I like this. <laughs> and uh, so from that moment on, that's all I pursued. So I never really worked uh, in any other job in my whole life, except uh, acting. So did you go the uh, theater route before you went into film? I did. I did. I did a bunch of theater all around the Southland. I uh, won uh, the Victor Award in Laguna Beach at the Laguna Beach Playhouse uh, for playing uh, Tajamaru in Rashomon. And then I also won an award for uh, at the same theater for doing the zoo story. And then um, I moved to the Disneyland Players where I did a couple of plays there. And then, uh, this is all while going to a junior college, Orange Coast College, and uh, I was student body president of that college, and, and part of the duty of the, uh, of the uh, president was to go on this t- local TV show called Agriculture USA, and the star of that show was a guy named Bill Stearns, and uh, you'd talk about agriculture, which I knew nothing about, but they had two professional agriculturees and uh, and two idiot you know student body presidents and we'd talk about they'd ask give us questions to ask and that week it was bees and honey and i got to ask two questions about bees and honey which the experts answered and they ask you what you want to be when you grow up and i said an actor and when the show was over bill starn says off camera do you really want to be an actor and i said yeah he said well you know my sister runs a theater in Peterborough, New Hampshire, and they're looking for apprentices. <laughs> and so I, my head was still shaved, totally bald, except for a top notch that I had from, from doing uh, Rashomon. And uh, as soon as the graduation was over, 
I, I packed a duffel bag and hitchhiked to Peterborough, New Hampshire, where I joined uh, the Peterborough Playhouse. And they did 10 plays in 10 weeks. And uh, the, the, uh, I, I was immediately put, put in building sets and, and giving a couple of lines for the first play. And then the second play they were rehearsing was the Rainmaker. And the leading actor, the equity actor, got sick and the day before it was to open. And they were going to cancel. And I said, I know that show. I did it in school. And in one day, I learned I learned all the lines for the Rainmaker, and went on, and uh, I got to I got to join Actors Equity, so I I didn't have to be an apprentice, but two weeks, and uh, eventually got started getting paid to be an actor. And from there, I went to Carnegie Tech, and from there, I went to uh, ACT, and I went out to California, and I went to New York, and I started acting all around, and uh, you know, mostly musicals in those days. I did a lot of musicals. Bonnie Franklin and I did uh, Your Own Thing. Uh, play open in New York. We did the, the San Francisco company, which was the second company. And then I joined the third company, which was, uh, which was at, the, at the Huntington Hartford. And uh, the guy playing my part, Tom Ligon, he left to do Paint Your Wagon with, with Clint Eastwood. And so I got to open the show in L.A., and uh, Don Johnson was my understudy in, uh, in San Francisco. And he, he took over when I left. And... Uh, then a couple of years later, I did another musical at the same place, same th- two places, uh, San Francisco and L.A. Uh, San Francisco was at the ACT, and in L.A. it was at the Huntington Hartford. Uh, it, was a, it was with Tony Shearer of, of Captain and Tennille. She wrote a musical called Mother Earth, which was a rock musical about ecology. And uh, Patty Austin was in it, and myself, and uh, several other players. We did that musical all over the country, ending in Washington, D.C., where we performed for Nixon. He gave us a little medal, a little gold medallion for uh, in, some, in some event because we opened the, uh, the Eisenhower Theater at, uh, at Lincoln Center. Uh, it was pretty impressive being around all the big politicos. And then I went to New York, and I went to California, and back and forth between L.A. and New York. I did my first movie out here. It was uh, Rio Lobo with John Wayne. I died in John Wayne's arms. That was my first movie. Yeah, and you got to work for Howard Hawks. That's pretty impressive. Unbelievable. My first movie was his last. Also, I'm reading this article right now on Sherry Lansing, who, uh, uh, who if you pick up this week's uh, Hollywood Reporter on the cover, it says, Secrets of a Studio Legend. And uh, Sherry Lansing was... Uh, it was her last movie. She was an actress. She started out as an actress, and she was she was in Rio Lobo. And my first movie was her last movie. I reminded her, you know, 30 years later when I met her at some event. And uh, she said, oh, God, don't tell anybody. I guess she didn't like her performance. I don't know. I, so I, thought, I thought it was fine. <laughs> I just don't think she wanted anybody to know that she was an actress. But everybody knows you're an actress. It says, it says in the credits. Yeah, you can't hide with things like IMDb around. No, so easy to grab now. You know, what's that guy's name? You know, the one with her with the thing at the, the train? And oh yeah, Berlegas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like I use it constantly, mostly to remind myself where I am. You did uh, just a ton of television, especially in the late '60s and and pretty much all through the '70s. Um, what would you say was kind of like the role that? Um, at least the the movie role that really kind of puts you on the map. Well, I've never been really put on the map. <laughs> I'm one of those actors who's slipped under the radar for 50 years. 
Uh, I can eat at any restaurant and nobody bothers me. You know, once in a while, somebody will say, Hey, aren't you, uh, my neighbor? <laughs> and I'll say, maybe I'm probably in your living room a lot, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they don't recognize me very often. I've been, I've been, uh, it's, it's a kind of double-edged sword. Uh, I have friends that I can't go out to dinner with because, you know, someone wants them to sign a photo in the middle of, or take a photo in the middle of their dessert or whatever, you know, people can be very rude when they see their, their heroes, even if they, a celebrity is such a weird thing, you know, and, uh, you, you, you crave it. And then when you get it, you don't want it. It's like, it's like a, like out of the, out of the frying pan into the fire kind of a deal. But fortunately I've never had to deal with that. One time, I, I got a commercial in New Zealand, and I flew down there about 20 years ago, and uh, I was playing a big, dumb American farmer who said stuff like, uh, 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 your apple uh, from Royal Gala is about as good as this. Have you heard of apple pie? You know, it's American, and uh, uh, this here is uh, Royal Gala. And then his voiceover goes, do you know what Enza means, mate? And I go, yeah, it's where this apple's from. <laughs> I love, Randy, where's these apples from? New Zealand, New Zealand, dang, and dang caught on. And in those days, New Zealand had like two TV stations. And, uh, uh, <laughs> so every person in the Island saw this commercial over and over and over again. And dang was kind of like, you know, where's the beef? Uh, you know, it caught on. It was one of those commercials that just catches on and everybody. So the next, they, they had to do more of them. So they flew me down the second time. And when I got off the, the plane at customs, the customs officials, the people at the airport, the, every person I ran into, hey, mate, got any apples? Hey, mate, hey, you're the apple guy, hey. That was about as big a star as I've ever been, was for Royal Gala Apples. Uh, one of your early roles was was working on uh, The Driver with uh, for Walter Hill. And then you went on to work with him a lot. Well, Frank Marshall and I grew up together. Uh, his, he and my brother had were had a band in high school. His dad, uh, Jack Marshall, who was one of the first studio musicians out here, and a great guitar player, uh, and kind of uh, uh, pushed my career along as a singer. I, my first recording was with Jack and uh, Shelley Mann and uh, Jack Sheldon and these guys over at the Gold Star here in L.A. And uh, or one day Frank says, "Come on, I, I, I want you to be in a, a, a. I want you to meet Walter Hill. He's directing this movie downtown." So he picks me up and we drive down to uh, the Los Angeles Union, Union Station, downtown L.A. And I uh, meet Walter and Walter goes, yeah, he's fine. Uh, get him dressed up and you're playing pastor number two and uh, get out of my way. And, <laughs> and uh, that was my first movie with Walter. And, uh, and Frank and I had already done a few things together. We, we uh, worked with Orson Welles on his last movie and... Uh, Walter uh, hired me for that movie and, and, and subsequently hired me for 13 other movies. And, uh, uh, he's, he's like, he's the greatest, you know, he's just, he creates a family and, and, uh, if you fit into that family and if he can count on you and if you show up sober and know your lines, you know, you're pretty much, uh, in his, in his camp. Uh, if, you know, if you do what he says, because <laughs> he does, he does run his ship. It's a Walter Hill movie. You know, oftentimes you'll, you'll in, a, in a movie, you'll say, hey, what if I said blah, blah, blah? And the director will go, okay, let's try that. With Walter, he'll say, hey, oh, Walter, what if I said blah, blah, blah? He goes, 
That's a great idea. No, just say what I should. <laughs> Very seldom does anything slip in there that Walter hasn't uh, hasn't uh, you know directed uh, directed you to do. Uh, one time we were doing Brewster's Millions with Richard Pryor and John Candy, and and, and uh, I was doing a scene out in front of the. Uh, Plaza Hotel in New York City, and uh, a big limo pulls up, and uh, Richard gets out, and and all the press. I played uh, Chuck Fleming Action News, and the, all the press corps goes running down to the car, and I go, Chuck Fleming, uh, Ch- Ch- Action News, uh, uh, Marty Bruce, what are you going to do with all that money? Uh, uh, congratulations! He said, well, I'm going to go into business. Oh, well, what kind of business? Uh, uh, general business. Oh, general business. Uh, and in the middle of this uh, interview. John Candy, who's not even in the movie at this point, he's sitting in the chair off behind the camera, and he jumps up, he runs into the scene, and he goes, Chuck Fleming, oh my God, Chuck, I love you, I see you on TV, oh, I'm on TV right now, hey, all those guys who thought I would never make it, up yours! And it ends up in the movie. <laughs> because it was a very funny moment, you know. John Candy was one of those guys that you just couldn't... Uh, <laughs> you couldn't control. And he was just too much fun to try to control him. Walter was always capable if he saw something, you know, he thought it was better, he'd put it in. But mostly his stuff is pretty well thought through. And uh, if you come up with something better, it's surprising. <laughs> I remember doing the Long Riders one time, David Carradine fell asleep in the middle of a shot. It was taking forever to get the shot. And it was a big scene. Uh, all the all the gang was at the bar and uh, they were all talking. It was, uh, Jimmy Akeach was trying to talk Stacy and, uh, and and the Carradines and the, the Quades all into, you know, keeping the gang together. And each one had a line and then Jimmy would give a speech and someone else would have a line and then Jimmy would give a speech and someone else had a line. It was one of those big, long shots that took forever to get around to everybody. Well, in this one take, they did it over and over and over. In this one take, David fell asleep after after they said action. Uh, the, you know, he was awake and then in the, in the process of the shot, he fell asleep. And when when the camera got around to him, Randy Quaid kicked him, and he woke up and said the line right on cue, right in the right in the shot, and it's and it made the picture. <laughs> it was like, oh my god, you know, some stuff, uh, you know, it's just too good not to keep. So yeah, tell me, how did you get involved with Other Side of the Wind? Uh, I was in New York. Frank called me, and uh, he said, uh, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> And I said, I'm starving. Uh, I was just doing a play with Jose Ferrer at the time. I just finished it. And it closed. And uh, I was kind of at liberty, as they say. And he said, you want to be in a movie? I said, sure. He, at, that, at that time, he was doing Peter Bogdanovich's What's Up Doc. He just finished that. And that was kind of a hit. And, and uh, I'd see him in San Francisco. And we, we, we hung out together for a couple of days while he was shooting that. And... Uh, so I assumed he was doing Peter's next movie, right? Because he did the last picture show with him and and, and Daisy Miller and, uh, you know, uh, What's Up Doc, uh, Long Last Love, and a couple, whatever. He was, he was always in P- doing Peter's movies. And so he just called me and said, you want to be in a movie? Yeah. You have to know any more about it? No. You're flying to Phoenix tomorrow. There's a ticket in your name at JFK. That's great. So I figured I was going out to do uh, What's Up Doc 2 or something. And I landed at the airport and was met by this kid, uh, uh, Neil Canton, who uh, uh, ended up later on producing Buckaroo Banzai, Back to the uh, Back to the Future, 
and a wonderful uh, producer and uh, produced, uh, I think, uh, a couple of Walters movies. Uh, I think he was on Geronimo and I think he was on Trespass. Uh, anyway, he's a, he's a wonderful producer. So uh, he picked uh, six of us up at the airport. It was me, uh, this old, old character, star, I mean, star uh, a matinee idol from New York by the name of uh, Tony Selwick. Uh, there was uh, uh, a wrestler. By the name of Vince Barbie, oh, he had this old—he uh, had this red toupee that kept sliding off to the side. <laughs> Strange-looking bird. He had this little Jewish comic from the Catskills by the name of Benny Rubin. He had uh, Gregory Sierra, who was uh, uh, one of the stars of uh, Sanford and Son. He played Julio, and uh, and also he was in Papillon with uh, Steve McQueen. He was the, he was the, uh, the native in the jungle who was eating the cocaine leaves and running through the woods on the, when the, the bamboo shoots go shooting right through his chest. That was, uh, that was Gregory Sierra. And then he was there and none of us knew what, why we were there. We all knew we were there for some mysterious movie that we were doing, but none of us knew anything about it. We hopped in the station wagon and all drove out to Cave Creek, Arizona, where we went in and there was, uh, um, we went upstairs and there was, John Houston, Cameron Mitchell, Lily Palmer, Susan Strasberg, Edmund O'Brien, uh, Dennis Hopper, they're all eating T-bone steaks. And and I'm thinking, oh my God, I've died and gone to Actors Heaven here. And uh, Frank says, have you met him? And I said, no, I thought he meant Bogdanovich. I said, no. So we'll sit down, have a T-bone. I said, okay. I sat down across from Houston and, uh, and Mercedes McCambridge, where, where Houston was telling her a story about a blue Cadillac. That's all I really remember about it. Because I was just so amazed that I'm sitting, you know, four feet from John Houston and uh, listening to this story he's telling. And then all of a sudden I hear Peter. I went, yeah, come here. And I jump up and I run in and and then I see Orson come sliding across the floor. All 400 pounds of him with a big purple terry cloth robe held closed by gravity and, and sliding across the floor in these, in these open air, uh, high, high top tennis shoes with no laces and a big cigar and his glasses hanging on his neck and a script. And Frank says, Oh, Orson, this is uh, Peter Jason. He's going to be playing Marvin T. Pasterbender. And, uh, uh, Peter, this is Orson Welles. And he looked at me and he went, well, you don't look anything like anybody. And I didn't even know what that meant, but, uh, he said, where's your script? Frank, get him a script, get him a T-bone. And he slid off, welcome to the family, and he slid away. And uh, I went, oh my God, that's worse than well. <laughs> I went back to my T-bone. I was there for another couple of bites, and I hear, Peter! Oh, Jesus, he knows my name. I jump up, I go running out. Where's your script? And I said, well, I've got, Frank, bring me a script. Run, do not walk. And he, Frank goes running out and gets a script, he brings it back, and we go out by the pool, and his camera is set up, aimed at these rocks, these boulders. John Houston is standing in front of the boulders now, and I'm told I'm 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 playing Lily Palmer. Who uh, this is the reverse of a scene shot with Lily Palmer and uh, and uh, Norman Foster two years ago in Spain. <laughs> and so we're doing the reverse, and I'm playing or whoever I'm playing, Otter Lake or somebody. And he said, "All right, let's rehearse it." And John Houston went, "Da da 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 da." And I went, da, 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 da. and he goes, don't act, Peter, just say the lines. Said, yes, sir. Da, 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 Perfect. Let's shoot it. <laughs> and that was my initiation to Orson Welles' style of filmmaking. 
which was a little different than Walter's. Now, I know the shoot went on for a long time. How long were you Many years. I was only on it for a few months, the summer of whatever that was. I think maybe June to September or something. And uh, there, whatever year it was, it was the year of the famous gas shortage, where we all had to line up for gasoline. That's the way you could find out that exact date, because we had to line up the cars every day and fill them up with gas. And then, you know, when on an Orson movie, you have to cook, and then you have to be a driver, and you have to set lights, and you have to, you know, it's just, it's total outlaw of uh, filmmaking. You know, Orson just made, I don't even think they knew he was in the state. And whenever the police came around, because we'd work all night, he loved to work at nights. And, uh, all, and, 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 and in the daytime, he loved to work, too. He'd, he'd black out all the windows. And so here's a, here's a house on, my, on these rocks with all the windows blacked out, with bullets being fired all the time. And uh, police would come by, and he'd always send me to the door because I looked kind of normal. And, <laughs> and I didn't have long hair like most of the people on the movie. And because uh, I, I, in those days, I was making a lot of commercials. And so I was clean cut, and so he'd send me to the door, and it's um, what's going on. And I said, oh, well, we're making a little movie. Uh, it's for college. Uh, Rich Little is going to be in it. And uh, uh, I'm sorry for the gunshots. That's part of the scene. It's, uh, it's just uh, prop guns, shooting blanks. And, uh, you know, they're trying to put their heads in the door to peek around. And I just kind of blocked them away. And they, they'd say, oh, okay, well, good luck to you. Thank you. We'll try to be quiet. <laughs> and we did that for week after week after week. When you work with Orson, you're, it's really like working on the, on the wrong side of the law. <laughs> Everything is a scam and a sham and a. <laughs> but it was exciting, you know. It was very exciting. How much of the movie have you seen over the years? Well, we'd see dailies every day, so I saw a lot of the movie then. Uh, I've seen pieces of it. Uh, at one point, uh, after Orson died, it went to John Houston as artistic supervisor. After he died, it went to Gary Graver as artistic supervisor. And, uh, and after Gary died, but before Gary died, uh, Oya Kodar, who was Orson's mistress, tried to take it to... Uh, I, she saw me in a movie with Clint Eastwood, uh, Heartbreak Ridge. I have, I have one scene, I play as commanding officer, and I send him back to his fighting outfit. We worked one day. And, uh, it's a nice, it's a nice scene, but, uh, you know, we didn't become best friends or anything on that movie. Uh, we got our haircuts together. We shot the scene together and then I left and, uh, I played in this golf tournament once and that was it. And, uh, uh, Oya called me and she said, Oh, Peter, I saw you in the movie. You're so wonderful in the movie. You have to, you have to take this the film to Clint. You have to have him make it. You will finish the movie. It'll be wonderful. You take it to you. are his good friend. I saw the movie. And I said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I'm not his best friend. I said, I worked with him for one day. He doesn't even know my name. I, 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 I can't take the movie. I, I, she said, oh, no, Peter, I saw the movie. You are wonderful. I write, a, I write a letter to him. You give it to him. So I said, all right, you write a letter, and I'll drop it off at Malpaso Productions, and we'll see what happens. So I went up and picked up the letter, and I read it, and it was like, uh, it was like an eight-year-old wrote it. It was ridiculous. You, know, I, I, you can't write. So I wrote a letter. You know, and I said, dear Mr. Eastwood, congratulations on winning the uh, uh, award for Bird, for direction of Bird. I, I know you're off to Africa to do White Hunter, Black Heart. If you'd like to see some actual footage of uh, John Houston, since you'll be playing him, playing uh, a director, we'd love for you to take a look at this movie, The Other Side of the Wind, that Orson made. It's his last movie with starring John Houston, blah, 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 blah. I dropped the letter off. I drove home, and my phone was ringing, and... Uh, when I walked in the house and it was 
Clint's assistant saying, uh, what, uh, hi, uh, Mr. Eastwood is wondering uh, what this is all about and blah, blah, blah. I said, well, I forgot to mention and I neglected to say that I was a St. Peter Jason that played as commanding officer in Hartbrook Ridge. And I hear, Pete, Clint. And, and he was on the other line listening, right? And I said, oh, hi, Mr. Eastwood. He said, so what's all this about? I said, well, it's Orson's last movie. We, uh, it's not, it, it hasn't, we need somebody to finish it, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, he said, well, can you, I'm leaving for Africa tomorrow. Can you, can you come by this afternoon at five o'clock, Warner Brothers, and I'll set up and get the screening room? And I said, yeah. And I hung up and called Gary, and I said, he wants to look at it. So Gary whipped together three or four scenes. We went racing over there and uh, showed him the scenes, and he, and he, and he ended up, uh, you know, taking it. And uh, uh, he, wanted, he wanted to see if there was a movie there, so he wanted it all put on video. It was all on film, so he wanted to transfer it. So he had his editors transfer it. I'd, I'd take five reels at a time over there every week, drop them off, pick up the other five, and uh, like that for several months until he came back from Africa. And then I guess he had a couple of movies released, uh, Pink Cadillac and uh, Bird, White Hunter, Black Heart. He had like five, The Rookie, all those, and they all flopped kind of at the box office. And so Warner Brothers kind of took away his stuff, you know, his editing room and his blah, blah. And he kind of was falling in disgrace. Little did they know that the next movie he was going to be making and was uh, Unforgiven, which put him to the top where, he's all, where he has remained ever since. But there was that one little dip in, in his uh, popularity over there at Warner Brothers. And so we got dumped in the process. But I ended up with 10 hours of footage <laughs> on tape. So I saw 10 hours of it. <laughs> uh, I kept those uh, in my, my closet for many, many, many years until Frank called me and said, you know, we're missing a sound for this and that. And we, I said, I got a bunch in my, wa- in my, uh, in my uh, closet. I'm, really? Get it. Bring it over. And so they kept putting it together. They've been, he's been working on it for a lot of, long time. It's, it's quite a story. Somebody ought to do the, a documentary about the making of that thing because it was amazing. When was the first time that you met John Carpenter? Well, I worked with his wife, Sandy, Sandy King on the long riders. And, uh, she was the script supervisor and we, we hit it off. Great. Uh, I helped her do some stuff and she, uh, 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 thought that was really great of me. And, and, uh, so she'd been, uh, she met John on, uh, Starman and, uh, you know, they became an item and, and uh, a couple years down the line, I guess she must have mentioned me to John because I got a call from my agent to say John Carpenter wanted to meet me. And I went out to, I think it was like Santa Clarita out there somewhere where they shoot NCIS or something. And uh, I met with him on the movie uh, Prince of Darkness. And he said, I got the script. Uh, Sandy told me all about you. She likes you. And, uh, I don't know if you do horror movies or, or even want them or like them or anything, but I, that's what I do. And I have a part here. I'd like you to play Dr. Leahy. I'd like to take the script and read it. See if they'd like to do it. I did. And I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do with it. And uh, a friend of mine, David Warner, I asked him to read it and tell me, tell me what I wanted to do with it. And he did. And I went back to John and I gave, I gave him a couple of ideas. He loved them and he hired me. Once again, just like Walter Hill, I became part of his family, you know, because that's what he creates on the set too. Both of those guys are, are they they have a loving set. It's where people have respect for each other and each other's jobs. There are no stars, you know. Everybody just kind of 
uh, helps each other and it, it, they create a family and it's the ego disappears and the work becomes the most important thing. And it's the, it's the most conducive element uh, area for, uh, for, uh, artistic, uh, uh, progress to happen. You know, it just, it's very conducive. You know, you love working for him. He does the next project. Everybody signs up for it because we want to work with him. You know, I'd jump, I'd jump in a minute. He's the one who got me into Deadwood. John directed the pilot of that. I wouldn't have gotten in there. Milch didn't know who I was, but, uh, Walter just hired me for a role. And that role ended up being in the next three years of work for me. HBO has done this uh, time and time again. You know, I think it started maybe with The Sopranos. And then uh, the girls thing about uh, the love, uh, uh, Sex and the City. Yeah, 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 that's the one. Uh, Sex and the City, uh, Sopranos, um, uh, The Wire, um, Deadwood. And then it kind of moved off. The other cables, cable companies started doing the same thing. And now, now it's like Homeland. It's like, like I'm totally hooked on Homeland. <laughs> I just think it's great. And it's funny because the producer of Homeland uh, is, uh, was, was one of our producers on Deadwood, Ted Mann. Ted Mann was a writer-producer on Deadwood. I spoke recently to uh, Molly Parker and was trying to pump her for information on um, – because I had heard rumors for a long time that Deadwood would come back as a movie, but she hasn't heard anything. We hear about it. We hear about it. We hear about it all the time. But, you know, how are you going to get everybody together? They're all doing series. You know, everybody's got a series. Unless HBO hired everybody and, uh, you know, put them, all, put them all back there. But I don't think, you know, that, that ship has sailed, I believe. I mean, I, I'd show up in a second. I thought it was the most creative period of my life, probably. Well, yeah, it must, I mean, because I, I know you'd done television work for a long, long time, but I don't think you had done, you know, that type of cable-based series until that one. Nope. I did Mike Hammer, but that was a whole other deal. They didn't have the money or the time uh, to, to make that right, you know, as, to make it as beautiful as, as Deadwood did. The, you could see the money in Deadwood. It was all there on the on the picture. Well, I wanted to ask you about... Um, they live how so obviously you're back with carpenter how was that experience for you all the all the all my experiences with carpenter have been fun you know they're all it's all uh i never understand his movies of course because i'm not that bright but his always have to do with uh uh some 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 star or some uh, the, where the lead is always uh some disenfranchised uh, person who's uh fighting the, the big brother or the system or whatever you know and uh and it's 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 fatal it's a fatalistic kind of kind of uh, uh fight and uh i just never understand john's movies and then people come up and tell me about them and then i un understand them better as time goes on people tell me about them and then now i see what they're talking about but while i'm doing it and at the time i don't see them I just play whatever John tells me to play. I play my action, you know, what do I want here? And he tells me, and then I go get it. Right. But I have no idea about the. That's why I could never direct. John asked me one time, he said, why don't you direct? And I said, oh, I couldn't direct. And uh, I said, I don't have an overall perspective. I don't have a point of view. I mean, I can talk to an actor and make him believable. 
and I, I can I can work with every member of the crew, and uh, and and create that family. I can do everything except uh, I have no point of view, and uh, you have to have a point of view if you're going to be the director. Otherwise, why are you doing the piece? You know, and John's points of view are 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 so oblique. They're so <laughs> so uh, you know. Uh, they're beyond me. They're beyond my scope. Um, my wife and I went and saw the, they live at the premiere of that. And we looked at each other and it was over. And I went, what is that? What, what, what's this about? I had no idea, but over the years I've been told and people have told me, uh, what they thought of it. And the more I hear about it, the more I get an opinion on it. And, and, and but it's really not my opinion. Uh, like I heard somebody say once, uh, I'm, I'm a very opinionated person with no opinions. <laughs> But I look for the people that I respect, and I try to uh, uh, try to uh, pick up their opinions. I, if you tell me what what you think of it, I, I'm such a people pleaser. But if you tell me what you think of it, and I, I I can identify with that, then I'll pick that as part of my what I think of it. But left to my own devices, I, it's it's over my head. I'm not that bright. That's why I'm an actor. You know, you've been in how many like over 100 movies 100 100 roles over the years i mean not even counting your theater work i mean just to hear yeah, I, know, 200, uh, I, I see 251 over, credits uh, on imdb i think there's over 500 commercials <laughs> i've uh, over 100 over 100 plays i've been a uh, uh, 250 i've got 250 credits i think in imdb uh but uh you know there's a lot of a lot of pilots that were aren't that I did that didn't sell, so they're not in there. There's a lot of movies that never got released, so they're not in there. You know, I I, I love acting. It's I, I it's it's play for me. It's not work. It's you know I've, I've been able to play for. I'm going to be 73 this year, so 73 years of playing. I have a I have a great attitude towards life because I've never had to work. I never had to show up every day and do something that I you know really hated, or you know. Forced to go to work every day, nine to five, and sit at a desk inside. I hate being inside. I have a, I have a, I have a lovely house. I hate even being inside it. I'd rather be out in the garden, on the tennis court, uh, on the golf course, uh, in in the, in the pool, uh, somewhere outside. I'm just trying to say you're downplaying your intelligence, and I know it's it's you know joking around, but you just to be able to even just rattle off these character names of stuff that you played 30, 40 years ago, and then know the lines <laughs> and having had memorized all of these lines over the years. I mean, you have to have something going on between those ears. Well, there's something in there. I don't know exactly what it is because I did a play at Carnegie tech in 1965 and uh, I had to come out on stage, and it was a play called Cambyses, King of Persia. And uh, I, I played the prologue, and I had to come out uh, at the opening of the show uh, uh, on the front of the stage and, and, and say, Agathon, he whose counsel wise to prince's wheel extended, by good advice unto a prince, three things he hath commanded. First, is that he hath government and rules of men. Secondly, to rule with law, each justice say to then. Thirdly, he must well conceive, he may not always reign. Well, thus rule unto a prince, Agathon squared plain. Sister of the wise, whose sapience and volumes great, the power is of that time and then excel. A prince, saith he, is of himself a plain and speaking law. The sage and witty Seneca, his words thereto 
wounded frame, the honest exercise of kings, men will ensue the same. Contrary wise, that a king abuse his kingly seat, his ignominy and bitter shame and fine shall be more great. And Posey are the reign of king, who Cyrus hight by name, who did deserve as I had to read the lasting blast of fame. For he, when sisters three had sought to shear his vital thread, as heir apparent to the crown, Cambyses did proceed. He and his youth was reared up, a state of virtues long yet being king, did clean forget his perfect race before. Now, I don't even know what that means, <laughs> but it's still up there rolling around in my brain. And every once in a while, I have to throw it out to make room for the for the new NCIS that I'm doing or whatever. <laughs> and it's really hard to move the old shit around and get the new shit in. <laughs> but it is really a fun business. And I think it's the only business in the world that I can think of, maybe music where you get to play all the time, all the time <laughs> with everybody. Because I, I play with the, I play with the, the clerk at the grocery store. I play with the kids in line at the movie theater. I play with everyone I come in contact with. And my wife, it, you know, she can't stand it. It totally embarrasses her and it embarrasses everybody. But that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the fun. And the fun is in the embarrassment. It's not fun when you say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? That's no fun. How are you doing? Oh, glad you asked. My neck is cranking. You know, it's always the opposite. Whatever you, whatever you, whatever they come at you with, you give them the opposite back. Have a nice day. Thank you. I have other plans. <laughs> you know, my job is to have fun. My job is to play. I always use the example of the Tony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. Now, here is the ugliest character in the history of literature. This guy eats people. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. Okay? Yeah, he's a murderer, but he actually eats them. That's the worst character ever written. Yet, we're laughing at him through the whole movie. Having an old friend for lunch. <laughs> With a most fine Chianti. <laughs> we're howling at this guy. Because he loves his guy. He has so much fun playing his guy. We have fun with him. You know, nobody likes to watch anyone work. We want to see people playing. We're a nation of voyeurs. <laughs> we love to watch people play. Sports. You know, politics, whatever. The more fun, the more fun. I mean, there's a point. You kind of do want your president to be normal. We won't go there, will we? It'll all be taken care of by the time this thing comes out anyway. You talked about how strict, well, strict might be the uh, too strong of a word, but how uh, adherent to the script Walter Hill, Hill was and is. How about John Carpenter? Did he give you that room to play around with dialogue or come up with ideas? You know, his, his are pretty much solid in there. He's pretty locked in as well. He likes you to say his lines. Uh, you can, but, uh, he, he'll, he's a little more bending than Walter as far as, you know, saying something that you, you, you might think is more comfortable for your character. And it usually is a matter of that because by, you know, two, three, four weeks of being in character, all of a sudden you are the authority on this guy. You know, pretty much more so than anyone, more so than the person who wrote it, more so than the director, more so than any other cast member. If you've been playing this guy, and you find this out more on stage than anywhere else, but it's, it's your behavior is you've, you've, you create this character, and, and all of a sudden you know best that you're like, one, I, uh, this is, this is a, I've said this before, but I had a teacher at Carnegie Tech who was a voice and t- speech teacher, and her name was Edith Warman Skinner, and she was considered in the theater world as the grand dame of voice and speech and, and Bill Ball and Ellis Rabb would fly her in before they heard their show open to listen to everybody speak. And I did a play there called, called the country girl by Clifford Odets. 
And in it, I played uh, Frank Elgin. And in it, I had a line to my wife, Georgie. I said, um, Georgie, don't get secretive with me. That was my line, right? And she and, and at Carnegie Tech, you get interviews afterwards and uh, by all your teachers, individual critiques. And I went into her office and she said, oh, Peter, you're a marvelous actor. When are you going to learn to speak? The word is secretive. <laughs> Now, in a naturalistic play, you know, no one's going to say, George, you don't get secretive with me. You know, you're just not going to do that. It's just not, it's wrong. <laughs> but to her, <laughs> I was wrong. Right? So, you know, everybody has a, has a point of view. Everyone has their own opinion. And some are, she's, she's probably right for herself. You know, you're not going to change her mind about that. When it came to They Live, you worked a lot with... Uh, Roddy Piper and Keith David, and I know obviously Keith David had been an, uh, an actor for a lot of years. Roddy Piper, I think this is like what his second or third professional movie role. How was that working with him, coming from a wrestling? <laughs> Funny little story. I went down uh, my first day. They'd already shot, started shooting. They shooting for about a week. And I went down for my first day and uh, actually I was going down for a fitting and they were shooting downtown LA and uh, I went up and saw Sandy and saw John said hi. And then I saw this huge crowd out in front of this trailer and I went, well, who, what, what are they doing here? What's a, what's a big crowd for? Oh, that's for Rowdy. Rowdy. Who's Rowdy? And they said, Rowdy, the star. What star? Rowdy who? They said, Rowdy, Roddy Piper. She's the star of the movie. And I went, who's Rowdy, Roddy Piper? <laughs> and, and they started laughing and they said, Oh, he's a famous wrestler. It's a famous wrestler. He's the star of the movie. <laughs> and first John and Sandy are trying to make me keep, be quiet. <laughs> and I, I, I said, and he said, yes, he's a fantastic wrestler. He's a great showman. He's the star of the movie and have some respect. <laughs> and, so, and so I couldn't believe that we, that I was going to be working with a wrestler, you know? So, uh, and this huge crowd, I mean, a hundred people were outside the trailer waiting to get an autograph from this guy. And, uh, so I, I found that to have great humor. And, uh, uh, when I first met him, it was like, I, I had a smile on my face the whole time and I couldn't help but not smile when I, when I was around him because who calls himself Rowdy Roddy Piper? Come on, nobody. And, uh, it turned out he was the sweetest, nicest guy. His family was as sweet, nice as could be. And, uh, and, and Keith, I knew before and after, and Keith and I had done several movies together. In fact, we, we did this movie where, where uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm a, a partner in a gay couple, and uh, our daughter is marrying his son and uh, and a movie called Hopelessly in June. And uh, he's totally prejudiced against gays. And... Uh, uh, we had some great times together. I love Keith. And uh, while we were doing They Live, he was also working on, on a musical. Doing, he's, he does Nat King Cole. Uh, and so you'll have to talk to him about that and ask him when we can see that, because I'm dying to see it. I'm sure he's great in it. And he's been working on it for many years. And uh, But, uh, yeah, Keith and, 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 uh, and Roddy were great. I love, I love both of them. I, I had a great time with both of them. But it's, you know, I'm, 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 we're, we're playing with glasses that you can see uh, people turn into ghouls. And, uh, it's like it's, the extended reality is so far beyond my 
understanding that all you can do is do what the director tells you, you know, if you haven't want to have any kind of believability, you have to throw yourself and in the, in the given circumstances completely, you have to totally believe that you can actually see, uh, people change into ghouls when you put these glasses on. That's the fun part of acting. That's why I, I, I wasn't a big fan of horror movies until I did them. And when I did them, they're so much more fun because you get to be taken that much further out of reality. And, and actually, that's what we all, that's why we go to the movies, that they be taken out of our lives, you know, to be taken into some other realm. Some, just please let me escape my humdrum existence here. And we, and we're allowed to. You know, not only the audience get to go, we get to go and we do it. You get to, you get to pretend you're it's like, you're eight years old again. You're playing war. <laughs> you wing me, you wing me. I'm alive. You know, it's like, uh, if, if you had a great time as a kid playing in a make believe world, you might be a good actor. Out of the 250 some odd roles that you've done for TV and film, what have been some of your favorites to do? My next one. Well, you got a lot of stuff in the hopper. You, you've got at least, I see like six or seven films in post-production right now. It, we're going to have a, a whole lot of, uh, Peter Jason in 2017. <laughs> Good. No, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, doing a show right now on, on uh, FX called baskets with, uh, with Louie Anderson playing, uh, playing a woman and, uh, Zach, Zach Galifianakis playing twins. And I'm playing, uh, Louie Anderson's older brother. Jim, Uncle Jim. It's a fantastic show. There is a lot of improvisation in that one. And I'm I'm having a ball uh, doing it. And then in June, I'm off to London to do uh, the new Jurassic World. Yeah, Frank Marshall is producing that. And so we're, we're going to London to do that. That's going to be great. A great adventure. You know, but no, I, I always say my favorite movie is my next one. <laughs> because, because the... the my favorite time is is working is while I'm on the set working. The, the director's favorite time might be uh, in the editing room. I don't know. Uh, it might uh, the casting director's favorite time is casting. The audience's favorite time is when they're watching it. Everybody has like a different favorite time. Once I finish it, I'm on to the next one. You know where am I supposed to be of service now? Because after all, I'm a service. You know they ask me to show up on time and know my lines. That's my job. It's a pretty easy job pretty easy job. Now there's a lot of people who have a difficulty showing up on time. Well, then their job is tough. And there's a lot of people who have a t- tough time learning lines. Well, that their job is tough. And there's a lot of people who have a, a tough time learning the lines and showing up on time. Well, their job is tough. That's those are the only requirements that I show up on time and know my lines. I don't even have to be good. You know, now they may not hire me again if I'm not good, but uh, you know, I try my best to be good. I, I, I don't know how to shave. I don't know how to shave that, uh, that performance. I don't know how to give you 75%. You know, uh, it's like, I only know how to do it one way, the best way I can. How can I help you? And, uh, and, and actually that's, that's kind of my mantra. I know it's not about me. You know, I try to keep the ego out of it as much as I can because it's destructive. As soon as I start thinking it's about me, then all the focus goes about, goes off of trying to be of service to the playwright, to the director, to the cast members, to the audience, to everybody that's not me. It ain't brain surgery. <laughs> I got to tell you, I love your attitude. It, it is so refreshing. Oh, well, thank you. 
there's uh, there is that is probably the only reason I'm still here 50 years later. You know, having fun is because I, I, I try not to make it be about me. Now, of course, I have an ego like everybody else, and my feelings do get hurt and stuff like that. But at Carnegie Tech, they taught us how to take criticism, and uh, so. A lot of people can't take criticism. So when the director says, no, nah, do it again, and this time don't be so dumb, you know, well, what do you mean? You know, <laughs> was I being dumb? Uh, but I try, to, I try to listen to the direction, and I try to do what they tell me. Left to my own devices, I'd probably take us all off the cliff. But when I have a director who watches, and uh, that's important because a lot of them don't. <laughs> But when I have a director that actually watches what I do and then tells me when I'm off, uh, I love it because I'm willing to do what you tell me. I've done it a couple of times. I did this movie called the, God, I hate to bust this guy's balls, but he's not really a director. He's more of a special effects guy. I did this movie and he said, bigger, funnier, bigger, more, more of a cartoonish, make him even bigger. Well, I'm already too big. And when I make it bigger, it was ludicrous. And he told that to me and to Susan Tyrell. We both, she was the mayor and I was the chief of police in this movie. And man, when I saw the movie, I went, never again am I going to take a first-time director and listen to him like that without going at least a check on the dailies. I said, that was the most unbelievable performance I've ever given. I'd tell you the name of it, but it was so forgetful, I don't even remember it. But Nicole Eggart was a star. I'm just sitting over here uh, looking at Whipping through IMDb trying to see what yeah. Tyrell was like, in. Oh, was it <laughs> the demolitionist? That's right. You didn't hear it from me. That was a bad one. Uh, it, it, good directors are hard to find. You know, it takes many, many years. I think of, it's like working on a car. If you just work on Chevys and somebody throws a Mercedes at you, you go, what the hell am I doing here? You know, but if you worked on everything and every kind and every, you know, for, and it takes, and it, you can't do it in a hurry. Nothing good happens in a hurry. You know, that's why uh, I love Walter Hill's line. He says, you know, as soon as you learn how to do it, you're too old to make them. They stop hiring you, you know? And I think, I think, I think the, uh, the, you know, this, 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 this death wish we have of having young people, we have to have young people do it. Oh, you have to be, well, you know what? It, sometimes it takes a long time. It takes a long time to learn the craft. And when you have uh, a young person in charge of uh, a lot of people and a lot of, uh, a lot of production, they don't know what to do. And, and, it get, and you get bogged down, and then no one knows what to do. And then the, you get these ridiculous movies. I mean, ridiculous movies. Look at some of the movies we're making today. They're ridiculous. And then all of a sudden, a little gem will pop out. You'll go, wow. People still know how to do it. How great. How great. You know, but I think a lot of, a lot of times people don't know what's good. They just don't know. You know, everybody has an opinion, but uh, I think my mom's apple pie is the greatest. Yeah, well, wait until you want, try one that they actually put apples in, you know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, unless, unless, you, unless you know what's really good, you don't know what's good. Like I, I, I got so upset at the award show that they had this year of uh, the Emmys. Maybe it was the Golden Globes. I think it was the Golden Globes. The, the performance of the year, I thought, because all the Brits always get the awards. All oh, the Brits are the greatest. All oh, the Brits are the greatest. Well, they're not the greatest. They're great at a lot of stuff, and so are we. But once in a while, we let an American play a Brit. And this last year, 
John Lithgow, uh, got to play uh, Winston Churchill. It's called The Crown. But his performance was the best performance of the year. He played Winston Churchill, and he's two feet taller than Winston Churchill, and he's an American. Doesn't even look like him. He played Winston Churchill in in four or five episodes of this character, and he's on stage 70% of the time, and he's hunched over, and he's smoking a cigar, and he's doing this character that was so brilliant, you know, so brilliant. It just transformed this giant John Lithgow into this curmudgeon-y Winston Church, a beautiful performance. And, uh, and, and somebody else won best Golden Globes. And I went, oh, you got to be kidding. you got to be kidding. And these are all critics that give that, I believe. The Golden Globes are international critics, aren't they? Foreign film critics. Well, you know, if you're a foreign, foreign film critic and you don't give John Lithgow that award, you're an idiot. So that whole room was full of idiots, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. I'm entitled. Trump can be president. I can be a film critic. <laughs> so I am opinionated in certain areas. <laughs> well, I, I think you kind of have a right to be. So I do have a right to be. I've been doing it for 50 years. And uh, my dad always says, he says about uh, people's opinions on stuff. He says on movies and stuff. He says, well, that's why they serve menus. Everyone has different taste. Uh, you can order the liver and onions if you want to, but personally, I'll take this banana split. Well, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been terrific. Well, did you have a good time? Yes, definitely. That's this was job. a real pleasure talking with you. <laughs> you did your job. Good time. You did your job. All right, back <laughs> I mean, in the mail, in the mail. And last but not least, we have Frank Armitage himself, Mr. Keith David. Now, I know that you had worked with John Carpenter on The Thing before. What was it like getting the role for They Live? It was actually fabulous because I guess it was the first time that I remember that somebody called me, John had called me personally to ask me to read the script and if I'd be interested in playing this role. It was, I think, my first like co-starring role offer like, like that. It was because he wanted to know if there was anything I thought was... Um, Less than flattering, I guess, you know, or, you know, and, 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 and I read it and I, I loved it. I mean, I thought, you know, I mean, he was being careful not to be disrespectful. And I thought, no, I, I, I understand this guy profoundly. I mean, you know, he was, I, it just happened that at the time I had been doing some work with a, a homeless foundation and, um, and, and for me, Frank was, a part of a, a, a very big group in America of the working homeless. You know, there are people who, for whatever reasons, lost their jobs at one point, and uh, so living conditions were, were difficult. You know, Frank, he worked construction. He had to travel around to send money back to his family so they could at least can live in an apartment. He wasn't in a living in an apartment, so he had to shack out in those shanty towns. So, I mean, I got that, and I uh, I thought, wow, I'd like to play this part. Of course, you had done The Thing, which is science fiction, hardcore science fiction. Had you done much sci-fi other than that at this point? That was, I mean, you know, it was a you know, fantastic experience. That was my introduction to being in the movies. I, I later did The Puppet Masters, 
and I did uh, you know, uh, another couple of things whose titles escape me right now that were sort of sci-fi genre. Um, but those, you know, that was my introduction to the movie. So when you came aboard, they live. Had they already cast uh, Roddy Piper? Yes, I believe so. I appreciated it because by that time, you know, when we worked on the thing, I thought, you know, I mean, it was great working with John. I mean, he was certainly, he worked fast. He was great. He was wonderfully visual. I thought by the time we got to They Live, his communication skills had gotten much better. His, you know, I mean, it, he wasn't bad during the thing, but he had really gotten better at communicating with actors. So he was able to, you know, talk to Roddy and, and really help him as an actor. And Roddy and I became fast friends. Any questions he had or any, any you know, concerns he had, you know, we talked about all the time, and he always asked me about, you know, is this in my playing this moment? Fine, you know how this was going, and we had many discussions about that. Now, was very to help help him any way I could. It's interesting that that dynamic between your two characters, where you are so cynical, the Frank Armitage character is so cynical. While Nada is so, um, you know, he's looking for the best parts of America while you're like, you know, the whole golden rule, he who has the gold makes the rule. And just that the way that you guys interact is so great. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I think that's also a, um, and particularly now, I think that movie has more significance today than it even had then. But I will also say, that it it bore significance at the time because I re- what I remember, and this could be selective, but I remember uh, they lived being like number one in the movies for two weeks, and suddenly you couldn't find it anywhere. It was I mean it just vanished, and I I remember calling Sandy and I and I asked her I said you know what happened I mean we were number one and now you can't find it anywhere. And she said, oh, we must have pissed somebody off. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, part of it was because we were very close to home. You know, I mean, uh, in the scheme of things, and I'm not, I'm not a conspiratorialist and I'm not paranoid, but I think that there's, there were layers of truth in that movie that resonate today. I even think some of those monsters look like Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I can't talk to you about They Live without asking about the uh, famous fight scene. Had you done that much stage combat before that point? As a matter of fact, when I graduated, you know, cause it was, it was, I had only graduated in 79. I was recently graduated. I'm a certified stage combat fighter. Stage fighting or stage combat is slightly different than for the movies, but the principle principally is the same. So, I mean, I, I had great fun. It was some of the best fun I've ever had, as a matter of fact. It's still such a remarkable scene, and then um, you know to see how it resonates even through pop culture. Have you seen the South Park parody of it? I certainly have, and it's funny as hell. <laughs> what is the uh, the attitude like on a John Carpenter set? The thing was my, being my first movie, I had no frame of reference. It being my first frame of reference. Of course, I've measured everything else accordingly. The one thing that was great, uh, I mean, uh, about being on a John Carpenter set, when I, when I, by the time I got with him, he, you know, he had been used to a crew that had been working with him for years. Uh, Larry was his brother-in-law, I think, uh, who was the uh, a first AD and producer. 
So it was like smooth sailing. I mean, it was great. I worked with, I did always with Steven Spielberg. And again, a crew that knows him well. And so it was a very well-oiled machine, very, very easy to work on. And when I worked with Clint Eastwood on Bird, also a crew he'd been used to working with. So it was great. I mean, on both movies with John, we, I mean, we, we basically did 12 hour days, period. Very rarely did we ever go over time, over that, that I, that I remember, that I remember. And I'm curious, you had done a lot of uh, rehearsal when it came to the thing. And I think that was kind of planned. And then also because of some delays with the shooting of that, was there a lot of rehearsal for They Live? We rehearsed the fight scene with Jeff Lamada, Jeff Imata, Jeff Imata for about two weeks. And we just kept rehearsing and it. And it was great. It was just, I mean, it was wonderfully choreographed. He was very, uh, both he and John were very clear. But I mean, in the end, I think what makes the fight work so well is that there's a story involved and you see the progression of the story uh, through the fight. I talked to Peter Jason last week, and he was telling me that you have been working for a long time on a, uh, a Frederick Douglass-related project. I definitely. I mean, one of the one of the things on my bucket list is to play Frederick Douglass in a movie. So I'm, I'm always, you know, trying to find get people interested in that and and how we can make that happen. So yeah. Now you got to play him in the North Star, and then you've done voiceover work as Frederick Douglass. Yes, and I did a PBS special that it was about he and I think his relationship with he and Lincoln related to Lincoln. Yeah, it's interesting because um, Frederick Douglass is an example of somebody who's done an amazing job and is being recognized more and more. Absolutely. And in fact, Fred, Frederick, I, somebody just gave me a book because uh, I, I hadn't known this previously. But Frederick Douglass was the most photographed man of the 19th century. When it comes to playing Frederick Douglass, because I know, like, it seems like in 2016 you played Frederick Douglass and Don King almost back to back, at least in terms of release dates. How is it when you approach playing a real life character, and especially two so different characters? You got to do a little research and, and, and a lot of creative imagination. I, I was actually in another Don King movie where Van Rames played uh, Don King. So I had I had that as frame of reference. Uh, and, you know, there's no shortage of footage of Don King. So you can actually see that. There's, I don't know. That it, there's no footage that I know of of Frederick Douglass. But he was the most photographed man of his time. And plenty of, lots and lots of photographs, but being a fan of Frederick Douglass, I'm always reading some more stuff about him. I'm rereading his speeches and um, many of his speeches, especially, you know, his speeches on what's going on in the government and, and how to make America, you know, what what's going on in America race-wise. His speeches, you know, he was the first man to speak up in favor of women's suffrage and women's rights. And some of the stuff, if you if you go back and read that stuff, it could have been written yesterday. The resonance that it has for the audience today is astounding. Even looking at something just a few years old, like They Live, I mean, one of the reasons we're talking about it is because of that, that resonance that you talk about uh, even earlier, as far as just that it feels more relevant today than it did in 1988, even though it was steeped yeah. in Reagan, it really speaks to a Trump audience. 
It really, really does. Whenever I uh, have said that I would be talking to you, people go nuts about the film uh, Men at Work. People love Men at Work. <laughs> well, I, that makes me very happy. I love that movie as well. I had a great experience because it was the first time that I got to do some comedy in the movie. You know, I'd done, I'd done, I'd done you know, comedies on stage, but uh, that was my first movie comedy. So it was great. Had a wonderful time. How was it working with the, um, um, I don't want to say Sheen Brothers or Estevez Brothers, but with uh, Emilio and Charlie? It was fantastic. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the again, the atmosphere of the crew, was, it was great. Uh, you know, I, I'd never worked with Emilio, but I always liked his work. And, um, you know, Charlie and I were reunited from Platoon. Uh, it was just, it was fun. It was fun. And, and that was the name of the game throughout the whole, uh, the whole experience. But I really, you know, it, you know, it gave me a chance to uh, kind of step out and be sort of broad in playing the character and the whole, the whole movie had, had, had that, um, that kind of outrageousness. I wanted to ask you uh, a quick question about Mr. And Mrs. Smith. Because I know you did uh, voice work in that. Were you ever supposed to be on film for that one? Was there ever a scene of you physically? We had shot many scenes, and then from you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not privy to everything, but from and then what I what I understood was when they when they went back to re-edit the film to focus it more on the couple, Mister Smith. There were some of us, some characters that were cut out, father and mother being one of them. Uh, but you did, you did, I did retain an image, like I think it's a mirror image you see of me as I'm talking to them on the phone. You do uh, a lot of stage work, but I know you recently were in uh, Toast. Can you tell me a little bit about that one? Oh, man. Again, you know, I got, I got to play an iconic character. I got, I got to, um, Dolomite is, 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 you know, you know, in, 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 in Toast's for years, you know, you, you know, there's the legend of Dolomite and I actually got to play him. And, uh, if you know, if you, if you're familiar with Rudy Ray Moore and those, you know, seventies Dolomite movies, the movie takes place where the play ended, but when he gets released after 25 years, 20, 27 years in prison, that's when Dolomite begins. Uh, and that, and that was good. I wasn't sure if you were playing the Dolomite. That is so awesome. Yeah, I was playing that Dolomite. Yeah. Do you get back to the stage very often? As often as possible. You know, I mean, I have a family now, so it's not as easy to go back to the stage. Just economically, and you know, and praise God, I'm busy enough in uh, movies and TV that you know, carving out a time to be in the theater as well. Past couple of years, I have. As a matter of fact, last last summer, I did. Uh, my third August Wilson play, which is Ma Rainey, and we just we just won an ensemble award, the best ensemble award. What are some of the roles that we can look forward to seeing you in on the big screen? Uh, my last one was um, the Nice Guys. I, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm supposed to do a movie this summer, but I can't talk about it because it ain't done yet, and we'll we'll see we'll see if that happens, and um, and you can see me. On Greenleaf. Yeah, tell me how is that going? That is awesome that you're on. Oh that. my God, it it is awesome. I, I 
it's just wonderful. It's it's some of the best fun I've ever had. I love this part. I love the cast, the writing. There's so many wonderful things about it. I know you've been doing some voiceover work on The Flash as well. That's always nice to hear you pop up. No, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time today. This has been great. Oh, no problem, man. Anytime. back and we were talking about they live now patrick before we took the break you mentioned the short story that this was based on and it's interesting because i knew of the short story and then i think it was you al gore who sent the comic adaptation which i wasn't aware of until you'd sent that along it's interesting to compare the two and then the comic adaptation albeit brief just like the short story it was based on really powerful and just so cool to look at i was really impressed with the art style on that yeah, I came across that uh, when I was doing research for my own show when I covered the, covered this movie, and I, I actually I love it. I I love the underground style of it. You know, re- reflexive of that kind of comics with an X aesthetic. You know, that uh, crum- very crumb esque behind it, and it is just a depressing barrage of uh, imagery and words just thrown at you. And the fact that I believe Nelson he wrote that as well, didn't he? So he was the one who was involved in actually adapting it into a comic book form. It, it, it works. It really does work. I had not read the comic until I was preparing for this and saw that Carpenter essentially borrowed that very iconic final shot of They Live. It kind of comes directly out of that comic adaptation. And it's interesting. So the original short story was called 8 O'Clock in the Morning. And then the where I'm trying to remember if our protagonist had a name but he definitely has a name and and the name of the comic adaptation is nada but uh both of them or at least for sure the short story opens with this whole thing of him getting a phone call and basically telling him you're going to die tomorrow at eight o'clock in the morning and he is uh one of the few people in the world who has managed to wake himself up from this hypnosis that the aliens have put him under and then i like in the comic we see the aliens and we see their form which is remarkably different than what we see in the 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 they live movie just these horrific creatures and the way that he has to keep his cool having seen their true visage and being you know walking around in the world but having to not let on that they look anything different than a quote-unquote normal human being just that day-to-day struggle for him you know has to have been really difficult because these things are are hideous you know they they, they're they're just monsters worse than i would say the they live monsters which though i do have to say that the they live monsters look remarkable i mean i don't know uh how much of that was mask versus makeup i mean but they looked great and i really uh always appreciated just how strange they looked even though they were kind of human looking but especially those eyes those big big eyes of theirs were just 
just give you nightmares. And I actually think they look better when they're shot in black and white. I mean, we get to see them mostly in that, but they just, there's so much more creepiness when we see them in black and white. And it's like when, when they come to color, they don't seem as threatening anymore. They look goofy. And I wonder if the reason they chose these bright colors for them was to impart that kind of goofiness to them, to show that when we bring our enemy into the light, as it were, that they're ultimately things to mock, not necessarily things to fear. Real quick, he was named George Nada in the original. Oh, George Nada, but he's never really given a first name in the movie. No, he's just nobody Nada. even calls him Nada in the in the movie, do, do they? Yeah, I don't think no, so. I think it's only in the credits that you see his name is is Nada. I I I like the makeup design a lot too, and I love how sort of iconic it has become and how sort of memeified it now is as we talk about politics and stuff. I had always kind of interpreted because there is a a cheapness to it, particularly when they talk kind of because of the, the lipless design, it makes their mouths move kind of strange when they try to talk. And I always kind of interpreted that as just a function of the budget. This is a fairly low budget, independently made movie. But I remember listening to a discussion of this film on a different podcast and they were arguing that that sort of cheap, aesthetic was very deliberate that Carpenter was trying to present this as kind of a 1950s sci-fi film as a way of smuggling this social commentary under the guise of schlock. I don't know that I totally buy that. I, I've really just always an interpret and, and I love the design of it, but I've always kind of interpreted maybe some of the limitations of the makeup as being a function of the budget. Yeah, it'd be interesting if he had a budget higher than three million. If he, but still the complete control that he enjoyed when making They Live. If he had, if he would have gone with something that was more like the comic book, say, because as we mentioned, a lot of the imagery from the comic book found its way into the film. So it makes me wonder when he was introduced to the story. Was he introduced via the short story, or was he introduced via the comic book? I think he has said via the comic. Okay. And I have a hard time believing, too, that 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 aesthetic choice was deliberate, that he was deliberately trying to make something that looked schlocky when you consider what he did with the thing, which was to kind of go out of his way to do something state of the art, never shown before. Um, He doesn't seem like a guy who would phone in a choice like that on purpose. Yeah. Oh, well, heck, you look at the stuff he did in uh, in the Mouth of Badness with that whole yeah. creature wall. Yeah. I mean, if you want to see something of that's approaching the way those aliens looked in the comic book, look to that, which was only shown in, in brief snippets. But you can find behind the scenes footage or uh, stills. Last time we talked, we talked about the thing, and that is kind of what put him on this path to not having a big budget. You know, it was because of the failure of the thing, the the box office and critical failure at the time, that really put him on this path where he was making these inexpensive or cheaper movies. You know, it's it, it was uh, a shame that he didn't have that kind of a budget in order to do something like this. I mean, I think he made his money look really good in stuff like Big Trouble in Little China. I know some of those effects are cheesy, but I think in that case, they maybe are meant to be cheesy. Like the guy whose head is blowing up, you know, because of all the wind and all that kind of stuff. I think that that works in the service of the story, whereas I don't think that the monster mask in They Live necessarily work as effectively in service of the story. They do look cheap and i 
I don't personally, I don't think that they're supposed to look cheap on purpose. I think it was just because of the limitations of the budget. Yeah, I'm, that's that's where I'm going with too. Also, the fact that they only had one guy play all the ghouls. <laughs> right. Every time I see, we mentioned that scene earlier with the critics as they're flipping past the TV, and every time I come to that shot, I do think that that's Carpenter's "fuck you" for the thing. Well, he he has the critics actually call him out, where he's like, "Filmmakers like John Carpenter," and you know. George, George Romero. Romero. Yeah, <laughs> this is him taking a shot against the critics that were taking shots at him for his career. There's a weird connection that is going on with this because, so many, many, many years ago, there is an artist who went to the Rhode Island School of Design (RISD) named Shepard Ferry. Um, hopefully, most of the people that are listening to this podcast know who he is, but if not, I'll say anyway. He was a he was an artist. He was a skater. He um, was in graphic design, and he has since gone on to a little bit of a career. Um, when he was uh, a skater, he made a skate video where he actually used pieces of They Live uh, as part of the skate video, and then part of that skate video made it into a documentary, I believe by Helen Stickler, called Andre the Giant Has a Posse. And he was all about, uh, and he actually sent me an essay that he did a long time ago into this whole idea of phenomenology and images and the way that images have power and the way that repeated images have power, this kind of stuff. And he's the one who, well, Audrey the Giant has a posse, obviously a wrestling connection, but also a political connection. He <laughs> did a prank once where he blew up this graphic image of Andre the Giant's face and actually pasted it over a politician's face on this uh, um, uh, billboard. And it was one of these kind of, um, you know, media pranks where it was basically, you know, this making fun of this politician. And around that time, he came up with the Andre the Giant has a posse sticker, which hopefully folks are familiar with. If not, I'll, I'll post a thing out on the uh, the website about that. And then that Andre the Giant sticker uh, eventually kind of morphed with the They Live stuff. So then that's where you get the Andre the Giant face with the Obey tagline. And that whole thing just morphed into incredible, uh, just the, the breadth and depth of the Obey stuff went out for so far. When, I mean, one of the things when it came to actually the Andre the Giant has a posse thing was how far can this sticker reach? I remember you know walking through the streets of London and seeing the Andre the Giant has a posse sticker, going to Chicago, to New York, to all these different places and seeing that sticker every place and then the obey signage became ubiquitous as well um i don't know if you guys remember the show veronica mars but whoever did the production design on veronica mars was a huge shepherd fairy fan uh, pretty obvious because everybody be it veronica her father you know the teachers whoever it was they all had shepherd fairy images inside of their houses it was kind of <laughs> amazing how how this was everywhere there and then shepherd fairy he, he got 
a lot of notice about uh, eight, nine years ago. He was the one who designed the Hope poster for the Obama campaign, which then became parodied so many different ways. I have a, a, a T-shirt that has the Joker from the Dark Knight um, movies, and underneath it says "Joke." You know, there it's, it was just so many different ways. And then, of course, when Trump came around, that people would do that, and it would just say "Nope" underneath it. And it just was amazing uh, how this imagery and and all of these things from they live would carry on into this this whole art movement, and then even going farther than that. Um, one of the things that I posted on the Facebook invite for this was uh, Mitch O'Connell, who actually does did the header on the Projection Booth website. He got a little bit of notoriety last year during the Trump campaign because he's the one who designed the um, Trump face as the They Live alien. So kind of taking what Shepard Ferry had done, you know, years ago, and then again, giving it another twist. So there are all, are all these images of, of Trump, you know, with the hair and everything, but then with the, the, they live alien ghoul face. So it's just, it keeps coming around and coming around. And I've seen, I mean, I've seen that image or likenesses of that image on t-shirts and I've seen it everywhere. I have to wonder how frustrating that can be sometimes for John Carpenter, who tends to make movies that are so far ahead of their time in so many ways to see what a life they take on, you know, years after they are out of theaters and often considered box office disappointments, whether it's the thing or this one did okay, you know, but not great. Um, and then to see how culturally relevant, how much a part of our everyday conversation these movies, you know, eventually turn out to be. Um, I can't imagine. I'm sure it's satisfying for him as an artist, but sometimes I'm sure the, the business side of it can be a little frustrating when the movies don't do as well in theaters. And then 10, 15, 20 years later, we're all talking about them all the time. Well, like you said before, you know, it's great that people are talking about his uh, films, but where were they in the 80s when he was making them? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's like you wish that they would have a little bit more of a resurgence. I mean, it's great that, you know, Shell Factory, Scream Factory, these people are putting out these, you know, discs, especially like that right after we did the Thing episode that um, the, the Thing Deluxe DVD came out and Blu-ray came out, which is, you know, lauded as one of the best releases of last year. I, and so, and I, uh, they live also got kind of a deluxe treatment, though I don't think anywhere near as as much of the uh, behind the scenes material because I just don't think there was as much behind the scenes material shot at the time. But yeah, I'm glad that they're still getting respect and that they are still being talked about. But yeah, I wish that they had gotten more of their due at the time. They live was one of the earlier Scream Factory releases, and one of the things that endeared them to me early on and made me know that, you know, it was a company kind of being run by genre nerds like myself is that the, they live disc came with a slipcover and on the slipcover was a little sticker that said in the, in the alien font, it just said bye. Mine still has the sticker on it too. Mine too. <laughs> uh, curiously enough, based upon the way I alphabetize my movies, uh, they live is right next to the thing. <laughs> oh, you don't drop the article beforehand. Well, I do, but uh, oh, okay. just by, Alphabetizing. <laughs> okay, so they exactly, is before yes. thing though. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He has three shelves with movies that start with the. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the blockbuster oh, way. 
Do not remind me. <laughs> that, that used to drive me nuts when I worked there. I'm like, where is this movie? And then I'd go to the letter T. I'd be like, oh, you got to be effing kidding me. Well, it could get wor- they do that on uh, Letterboxd. If you ever try to make a big, long list and try to use their automatic alphabetizing, they d- don't drop the article. So you, there's a bunch of those all in a row. Well, and then I would have problems where I'd be like, you know, where's that, uh, what, Ridley Scott movie, 1492, and I'm looking at the beginning of the alphabet, and <laughs> no, it's under F. Like, oh, come on. The question is, where do you put 1984? Because technically, the, the proper title is it's spelled out. Right. Oh, yeah. I found that right. out by doing research, uh, because that's a another politically-themed episode that we have Very coming nice. up here. So, another reason for people to not listen to the podcast. <laughs> Well, that's the thing that kills me. It's the fact that there are people out there that uh, believe that politics should remain separate. And, you know, it it does seem reflexive of the way things were even when I was growing up where people didn't talk about politics. But politics at the end of the day is a reflection of who you are. It is a reflection of the of the world you live in and your level of engagement with that world. And while I'm sure there are certain people that would be quite content to kind of sit aside and, you know, sit everything out, at the end of the day, politics is still going to reach you. And I think that's one thing that Carpenter even talked about in this movie, that he, when he was trying to account for the big drop-off in people um, going to the film, you know, Keith David has a theory that the powers that be pulled it, that, you know, is a big conspiracy. But Carpenter's... Um, explanation for it is the people that came in to see an action movie they didn't necessarily want to be enlightened no i can definitely see that and i know that uh sandy king talks about how they tried to repackage the film for the election back in 88 89 and that was kind of a disaster at the time so sometimes people don't want politics to mix with their movies but this movie was so political and we've said time and again how relevant it is to today i mean that you know as as I'm putting this uh, episode together with you guys, it's just like that's when that whole hubbub about this being, you know, a, a, a uh, uh, an anti-Semitic film comes about. You know, it's just like, yeah, people are still talking about this movie. You know, that's just me, and it's not just me making this a political thing. <laughs> it's 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 people on the, the you know the the crazy alt right people that are doing the same thing, and it's amazing too. I was while I was out um, doing research on the film, uh, and uh, I I'm hitting YouTube. And and there is like a little behind the scenes feature at that is out there. And then I see this thing, they live too. And I was like, what the hell is this? And I go, and yeah, it's about like how, you know, basically the reptoids have taken over the government and all this stuff. I'm like, Oh geez. It's just like taking the conspiracy theory and really like, Oh yeah, no, this is real stuff folks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know all about it. And it's just like, Oh, you got to be kidding me. This is amazing how how nuts this stuff gets. Cuz at no point do I actually think that there are aliens who have taken over, you know, even though by killing a lot of these climate bills, they are effectively going to make it a lot easier for the aliens to come down and, and be, you know, able to to breathe our atmosphere a little bit easier. But I really don't think that that's true. I will admit it here. I am insane. Well, and this is the thing. The the appeal of conspiracy theories is the story. It's the idea that there is something wrong behind the world and you have been allowed a glimpse behind it. I mean, it makes me wonder, and it, it, this would probably be an interesting study, but you know the people that um, reject the moon landing. How much of traction did they get 
after the release of Capricorn 1 in the late 70s. And I always am curious which came first, which was the chicken and which was the egg in that instance, as far as was there already a conspiracy about the moon landing? I mean, that had come out, you know, that had happened what, five, six years before Capricorn 1? So I'm curious, was that already in place, or did Capricorn 1 help make that a reality, make that conspiracy theory come to the fore? Yeah, or is it both true? I mean, one, one thing they have been able to track is the number of people presenting inquiries about the JFK assassination. You know, you had people questioning it from the jump, but it wasn't until um, the Oliver Stone film came out that there was this huge resurgence in interest in looking into it, and it became the industry that it became. And that's certainly one of the power of, of movies, you know, is... In the case of like Capricorn One, if it all of a sudden convinces people that the moon landing is faked, well, some people can't be helped. But I like the idea that somebody might see they live and not necessarily have their suspicions confirmed, but to have this be the moment where they put on the glasses, where this seeing this movie is kind of crystallizing a realization that like, oh, wait, the people in power are trying to fuck me over. I like the idea that the film can um, not just reflect certain beliefs or even conspiracies, but actually create them, you know, and I, and I like it in the case where, again, it's not making people crazy, like with the moon landing, but I think if people are taking away certain messages about the power structure in this country from seeing they live for the first time, uh, you know, I think Carpenter did his job. You hear about that uh, pizza parlor? Once you read John Podesta's WikiLeaks, all those references to pizza and walnut sauce and hot dogs, once you look at the archived photos uh, from Comet Pizza's public Instagram before they took it private, it had art that was truly profane, art that sexualized minors, and art which we should demand an explanation for. So am I going to join Alex Jones in apologizing to James Aliphantus? Fuck no, over my dead body. I wonder if anybody has ever connected the whole Pizzagate thing, you know, this sort of organized cabal of um, child molesters to the breakthrough success of the first season of True Detective that dealt with that exact same thing. All right, guys. So thank you so much for being on this episode. I really appreciate it. It's always good to talk with you. And yeah, I have to say that the episode on The Thing is uh, up there with one of the top downloaded episodes of The Projection Booth of all time. So a lot of people have heard that and, and given good feedback, though I did get critiqued at one point because I forgot I talked about the end of uh, The Hateful Eight. So apparently I ruined that movie for somebody. I want our viewers and listeners to know we apologize. I tried to stick to just They Live this time because, you know, Tarantino hasn't <laughs> remade They Live yet, so I, I didn't have to watch that. And they, have, they haven't done a prequel oh, to They Live either. So, <laughs> Don't worry. I'm sure you inspired someone to remake this movie with your hashtag observation because now all of a sudden somebody's like, wait a second. <laughs> There's a viral campaign waiting to happen. Now I'm, I'm just imagining the posters. It's just going to be hashtag obey. God damn it. <laughs> Starring John Cena. <laughs> nah, if they're going to get anybody, they have to get The Rock, right? The, then I'd actually see it. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fuck Talk yeah. Talk about breakthrough uh, wrestling talent. <laughs> so... 
Patrick, how are things going over at the F This Movie podcast? Things are going well. We put out new shows every Wednesday, and we have uh, new content available pretty much every day over at FThisMovie.net. And uh, El Goro, como esta el talk without rhythm podcast? Uh, it's going good, man. Um, we put out a sh- show every week. Um, I've been really ramping up the stuff that I've been providing for my Patreon supporters. I got this challenge where I'm actually going to the movies every week as a way of sort of forcing myself to kind of re-engage with cinema as people keep telling me it is meant to be experienced. So that has certainly led me down some interesting rabbit holes with my uh, film choices. If anybody wants to check it out, you can ch- uh, check out the main website, tworpodcast.blogspot.com. You know, I wouldn't ask you on here if I didn't enjoy what you guys do on your own shows, what you do on here. So, you know, I was uh, recently interviewed by somebody from uh, the Washington Post, hashtag fake news. And um, <laughs> they were asking me about podcasts that I recommend. And I do have to say, you know, you guys are over on, on the right hand side of the Projection Booth website, projection booth.com. There's a, a list of recommended podcasts, and you guys are there. So just keep podcasting. You'll keep showing up in the list. It's just you know, it goes through and picks up your latest episodes so that people can always keep up with what you guys are up to. So uh, I encourage people to check out what you guys are doing. Check out the other shows that are on there. You know, I can I can help fill up your uh, smartphone or any other sort of device very easily because there are a lot of quality shows out there. And, and uh, you guys are doing uh, two of my favorites. So I really appreciate what you guys do as well. So this is a nice love fest um, for this. Well, for this movie and for uh, you know the us in general. So I'm. This has uh, been a, a great time recording this one with you guys. We are the voices that are breaking over the television <laughs> waves. I got a headache. <laughs> That's a normal response when people listen to my show. <laughs> I think we should all uh, get a hotel room, but first, let's fight. I'm giving you a choice: either put on these glasses or start eating that trash can. Let's <laughs> go.
exactly, Rowdy Roddy Piper!
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. You are sleeping. You do not want to believe. You are sleeping. You do not want to believe. You are sleeping. You do not want to believe. You are sleeping. You do not want to believe. You are sleeping. You do not want to believe. You are sleeping. You do not want to believe. You are sleeping.